Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardware. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, he is a very popular YouTuber who has created short films like What If Wes Anderson Directed X-Men and video essays like Why Do Marvel Films Look Kind of Ugly? Patrick Willems, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. We're really excited to have you today, Patrick. And I just want to say right up the top that uh, today what we're going to be doing is discussing Solo. It's going to be one of those uh, episodes that's just focused on one movie. There's a lot to dig into here. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Before we get into that, though, Patrick, you, you are a prolific YouTube creator. Uh, you have a Patreon page as well for, to support your YouTubing. And uh, I, so I, I just want to, first of all, say like anyone who's interested in thoughtful commentary on film should check out Patrick's YouTube page. But Patrick, relevant to our conversation today, you recently uh, made a video essay about like what people look for when they watch Star Wars, right? Because you're, you're thinking through the extremely polarized reaction to The Last Jedi. And I was hoping in a few sentences if you could summarize kind of the, the main thrust of your uh, recent video essay about Star Wars. Yeah, so this is a topic that I really, I, I've been thinking about for a while. I think going back even like way before The Last Jedi, just the idea of uh, realizing that it seemed like a lot of fans, because Star Wars is the biggest fandom in the world, I would say, people seem to want very different things from Star Wars. And people would talk a lot about like, what a Star Wars movie is supposed to feel like and weird things like that. And then The Last Jedi comes out and obviously is maybe the most divisive blockbuster of my lifetime. And, you know, you'll see people saying things like, you know, oh, it's an okay movie, but it's a terrible Star Wars movie. And I was looking at those reactions thinking like, what does that even mean? And and so I really tried to dig into this concept of what people want from Star Wars, especially because Star Wars has been around for so long. It's been a continuing story through film for like 40 years. And uh, and I, this also seems to be a generational thing where depending on when people discovered it and and their age and, and just their experience with it, that especially going into these new movies that they, they have just different sort of demands from them. And, uh, and I think there are some people who in a way, just because of the way they they experience Star Wars, might never truly be satisfied with uh, with whatever comes along. And it's a fairly long video, so I can't summarize the entire thing right there. But but yeah, I I really I, I did my best to to really dig into that question and and find some kind of answer. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of this tweet that. Alyssa Wilkinson made this week on Twitter, where she says, "Genuinely worry that fandom is a disease." And and she kind of posted this uh, email that she received. It looks like an email. I don't I don't know exactly where she got it from, but it's from this fan of Star Wars who essentially talks about how uh, oh like Star Wars and you hope made me feel incredible when I saw it and Obi Wan and Darth Vader and all this stuff and how the new films don't replicate that exact feeling that this person had when they were young and watching A New Hope and how, as a result, they're terrible, you know? And and it's kind of this um, illusory idea that we can chase this feeling that we had when we were, you know, like, people grow up, they change, you know? And the idea that, that uh, Star Wars is a thing that's frozen in time and non-changing is kind of silly. I think you address that in your essay a little bit, too, so... Um, yeah, it's... 
it's this thing, and this is like part of like what I get into at the end of of the video. It's that because when a lot of people of like my generation, uh, like I'm 30 years old, uh, experienced Star Wars, it was just in a VHS box set, and they mm -hmm. weren't new. It was just one finite thing that existed already, and so I feel like t the experience that a lot of people seem to want from these new movies they can't get it because it's new star wars and so to get that experience they would have to essentially you know copy these movies from blu-ray onto a vhs tape and travel back in time and give them to themselves when they were children so Wait, that they is that were... a possibility can we do that <laughs> you know what Soon. uh anything is possible and hey didn't they just introduce star uh, our time travel into star wars at the end of rebels i haven't watched shush, it but i heard shush. about that it's a thing <laughs> So I wish we watched Rebels because I'd love to talk about that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it might, might make for a better conversation than the one we're about to have. But um, yeah. but in any case, you can check out Patrick's video essay. What do we want from a Star Wars movie? It's on YouTube. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, and I'd recommend all of Patrick's other uh, videos as well. He also hosts a podcast, We Heart Hartnet, where they go through the filmography of Josh Hartnet. Uh, which that seems is like a short show. Extremely niche <laughs> podcast. Yeah, you very would short be shocked. Podcast. Because after 2007, Josh Hartnett kept on making movies, but you haven't seen any of them. <laughs> yeah, I saw he's in a new one. He's in a new one with a, like a Japanese woman taking English classes, right? That looked kind of interesting. Yeah, so. it's, uh, it was actually produced by like Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. It's supposed mm. to be great. We just haven't gotten to it yet. All right. I'm looking forward to checking it out. But yeah, uh, We Heart Hartnett, also a fun podcast. Okay. Uh, before we get to our review today, uh, I just want to thank all the people who donated to this show up top. Usually I do it in the middle of the show, uh, but I wanted to thank uh, Benjamin Schultz from Denton, Texas for, for donating to our show this week. And also uh, Veronica G., uh, who donated with this lovely message that I'm not going to read for you. Quote, my fiancé and I are getting married June 2nd. That's in, that's in a week from when we're recording this. Congratulations, Veronica G. and fiancé. Yes. Um, I just finished student teaching, which is an unpaid position, so we decided to not get each other wedding presents. We've been together for eight years and have seen hundreds of movies and films. Watching movies, discussing movies, and listening to podcasts about movies has always been part of our relationship. Our guest book even has a space for each guest to list his or her favorite movie. While we didn't have uh, give wedding gifts, I wanted to still donate on his behalf. He's a great partner, an amazing step-parent to my children, and his love of Waterworld aside, a great connoisseur of film. Hey, now. Don't be hating on Waterworld. Uh, okay, so this donation is for Ben M. from Chicago. If you could send some love his way on the podcast, it would be very much appreciated. Our summer movie wager lists are on the fridge, and a shout-out may help me if he wins and gets to pick the movie. Thanks for your insightful entertainment and strong voices each week, and thank you for helping to contribute to what is, in my biased opinion, a really great relationship. Thanks so much to Veronica G. for that heartwarming message. And if you want to donate to this show and help us defray the cost of seeing films, you can go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Or go to PayPal.me slash FilmCast. That's PayPal.me slash the word FilmCast. All right, let's get to our review of Solo, A Star Wars Story. You're after something. Is it revenge? Money? Or is it something else? You look good. A little rough around the edges, but good. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together a crew. 
I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. <laughs> L3! Let's go with a mean man's face. Who are these guys? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. That was from the trailer of Solo, A Star Wars Story. It stars Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo, Amelia Clark as Kira, Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian, and a bunch of other really awesome folks. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. During an adventure into a dark criminal underworld, Han Solo meets his future co-pilot Chewbacca and encounters Lando Calrissian years before joining the Rebellion. All right, Jeff Kanata, you're a big Star Wars fan. Indeed. What was was your sort of uh, attitude going into this film? Were you looking forward to to learning more about how Han Solo (laughs) became Han Solo? And and what was your reaction to the film? No, I I, honestly, this was uh, the only Star Wars film that, well, that's not true. Uh, By by mid-prequel, I guess I was not exactly, uh, uh, you know. Looking forward uh, to them, yeah. Looking forward to it. Uh, No, I I didn't feel like we needed a backstory to to Solo, but I did go in um, optimistic and hopeful and and excited that, hey, a new Star Wars is always, always fun. But I'd like to express my views on this experience this way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there is a, a park very close to where I live now that in the summertime has concerts in the park. Uh, they're free and they're delightful. Uh, and one of the things that they have there that last summer that my family and I went to is a Beatles cover band. And this Beatles cover band we went and saw, and they played all the hits uh, of the Beatles, and they were really, really good, and very accomplished mu- musicians. And I, we were having a great time listening to the music, and we're like, "These guys are really excellent musicians, and and sound great." And then they would kind of go into these little sketches in between songs (laughs) where they pretended to be the Beatles and they would put on accents and pretend to act out like the, the uh, Ed Sullivan show from history. And, and every time they did that, it would just point out how not the Beatles they were. Mm -hmm. And it ruined the experience. And I was like, if you guys would just play the music, you guys are really good. Just play the music and we would have a great time. But you unfortunately have to keep reminding us how much you are not the Beatles. And that is, that's your downfall. Like don't take a moment and stop the thing we enjoy. You could just, just do your thing. Just have a great time and do your thing and stop reminding us how much you're not the Beatles. But of course, the only reason I was there is because they were the Beatles. Like, I wouldn't go to just <laughs> see this band play their own thing. I'm only there because they're the, the reason that they even got this gig, right, is because they're pretending to be the Beatles, not because they're like, you know, Bill, Ted, Susie, and Mark – 
the guys that can play music really well. They wouldn't have gotten a crowd to come to the park and see them, but for the fact that they are pretending to be the Beatles. <laughs> and that's how I feel about Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh huh. <laughs> can you, can you just finish? Bring it home for me, Jeff. Finish the analogy. Like what is what 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 represents what in this analogy? Ah, uh, this is a fun movie. This is a fun movie. It has a lot of really great ideas. It expands the Star Wars universe in a lot of fun ways. It explores corners of the Star Wars universe that we've never seen cinematically. There's There's been a lot of smuggler stuff in ancillary entertainment, comic books and novels and stuff. But in the films, we barely get that side, that underworld side. We only get sort of hints of it uh, with, you know, Jabba the Hutt's world and all that stuff. But you imagine that there's this cool smuggler world uh, just under the surface everywhere. And the fact that you get to see that in this movie is cool. The fact that it expands on, you know, Star Wars is a uh, space Western. And so you would imagine, well, if it's a space Western, there's a lot of Western tropes that we never see in the Star Wars movies. There are some cool Western tropes in this movie that you get to see spacified and done as a space Western, which is really cool. There's a lot of cool stuff. The, the action sequences are very accomplished. It's a very competent put together movie it's got a good pace and it's fun there are some great characters but every time it has to remind me that we're watching han solo and remember that thing you like about han solo remember that thing oh i bet you remember that thing about han solo remember how cool that thing is on han solo every time it has to remind me that the beatles <laughs> you know talked like this and uh, they were on ed <laughs> sullivan uh, every time it does its version of the member berries or, or the, hey, it feels pandering, it feels clunky, and it completely takes me out of what is what could have been a really fun movie if it was just about some other guy, some new character in the Star Wars universe that happens to be a smuggler and has these cool adventures. It is bogged down by its prequelness. I think it is. it hurts the experience rather than enhances it because it's trying to fit all these things in and it's trying to give you the backstory that didn't need to be given. Backstory is there to be backstory. It doesn't have to be expressed out. And I understand, hey, Han Solo had some adventures in his life, I'm sure. But the whole point, from my perspective of the Han Solo character in the original trilogy in four, five, and six, a new hope empire strikes back and return of the Jedi is that it's the journey of a guy who mostly kept his head down and tried to be selfish and just tried to stay out of the big affairs of the galactic political world. And just said, you know, there's this big war going on, but I'm trying to try to not be noticed in the middle of it and just make my money and try to profit off it and just stay out of the big things. And his arc is realizing, oh my gosh, there are important things in the world and I can play a part in it. And him finding purpose. That's the, tr that's the arc of Han Solo is finding that he can actually give his life and energy to something greater than himself and finding purpose in that. So, from my perspective, he's a guy who hadn't had that experience before. He hadn't <laughs> right. found purpose before. And if you have a movie where you show him going through that same progression of finding purpose and doing something and getting caught up in something larger than himself, 
then it sort of undercuts the journey that you see him take in these later films. I kept finding myself pulled out of this movie by virtue of the fact that we are watching a character that I know a lot about rather than a new, fresh, interesting character that could have made this movie sing and I think fly and have great, uh, you know, be, be really satisfying for me. But again, maybe the people wouldn't have shown up at the park to see random smuggler guy they needed to see the Beatles. you know what i'm saying to mix my metaphors indeed uh, indeed so that's how i feel about it. so we'll get a lot into the spoilers i have more detailed thoughts obviously but ultimately i think it's a fun movie that it ha- does a lot of good things but i had a hard time enjoying it because prequels are hard well, I think you point to this idea of if Han is going through the same arc as he did in the original trilogy, what is the point of the original trilogy, right? And Yes. Uh, and it didn't have to be this way. You know what I mean? Like, this could have been a movie about Han becoming what he becomes at the beginning of the of the prequel. Or, I'm sorry, of the original trilogy. Uh, yes. But that's, that is not what it is. Or um, it could have just been a movie about small things. It could have been a movie about... Like, I understand it's stars, so it needs to be grand and have cool action sequences and all those things. But a movie about Han Solo just in the underworld doing small capers and, you know, pulling off uh, cool smuggling things that aren't huge deals galactically and <laughs> it's, it could have been a much different tonal movie than all of the other star wars films it didn't have to feel like all of these other star wars films except disney has to give you the same experience that you expect from a star wars film. That, that's how i describe most of my work in daily life by the way is not cool things galactically i just want you to know yes um and, and that's Will- accurate <laughs> accurate dave patrick willems uh, what was your kind of approach going into this film? Were you looking forward to it? Were you trepidatious? And uh, what did you think coming out of it? I feel like my experience going into this was the same as probably a lot of people's in that when this movie was announced, I felt this is pointless. I don't care <laughs> where Han Solo came from. I, d- I don't want the spinoff. Like, I like the idea of Disney making spinoff Star Wars movies that aren't just the core episodes, but I don't want them to just be this person, but young. And, and, and uh, of course we got the Boba Fett announcement yesterday. So, uh, that is probably going to happen, but I was not interested. And this was not the kind of movie that I wanted to see. And then they hired Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And I was like, Oh wait, never mind. They've made a career out of taking bad ideas and making great movies out of them. So now I'm on board and they assembled a cool cast. And, uh, so I was kind of interested. And then I don't need to rehash all of last year, but so my enthusiasm. Trump became president and everything went. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, yes. Yeah, so well, in, in well this... let's talk a little bit about that, Patrick, because Variety released a feature this week that was probably yes. the most in-depth exploration of what happened behind the scenes of this film that's ever been put together so far. Uh, and essentially, like a couple of top line things we discovered were uh, that Ron Howard reshot 70% of the film. Yes, uh, and also that this is, I think, the most expensive Star Wars film ever made because of the reshoots at two hundred fifty million dollars. Uh, That's for production wild. Budget. So, uh, all that said, uh, I, I you know I don't think Solo is a good film, but it does not feel like it was a Frankenstein mishmash of like different visions, like uh, Justice League feels like. You know what I mean? Like right. This it does feel like a coherent vision, no matter how ins- uninspiring that vision might be. 
Yeah, uh, like, uh, yeah, going in, I was aware of the the whole, you know, R- Howard reshot 70%, and I could not tell where one ended and the other began, like you could with Justice League, a- right. as you mentioned. A- anytime yeah, there was, it, like, humor, I just assumed that was Lord and Miller, because <laughs> there right. was not that much humor, so I was like, oh, that must be part of the 30%, but... <laughs> right, but um, at the same time, you know, like, uh, Kasdan wrote it, and Kasdan wrote a pretty funny script for empire strikes back with a lot of funny han solo stuff exactly, so yeah. you, can, you can never really tell you can never know so right and so but yeah so as as you know the movie got closer and closer and also it was so weird this coming six months after the last jedi and uh where i kept forgetting this was actually happening i just kept assuming it was going to get pushed back to december <laughs> uh and so and i just hadn't been excited but at the same time i just i assumed that like Sort of in the way that I go into most Marvel movies, that they're uh, even w- when there's like behind the scenes difficulties, Lucasfilm is confident enough that they can pull together a functional movie. So I was like, I'm sure it'll be okay. And then I saw it, and I was like, you know what? I don't think this movie should exist. I think it's <laughs> unnecessary. I think the idea in the first place is bad. But if it's gonna exist, I'm glad it's kind of fun. Like, uh, that that's my scorching hot take. This movie mm. is pretty fun. And, I, I mean, in general, I agree a lot with what Jeff was saying in that I think the movie is best when it's just being, like, a heist movie within the world of Star Wars. And I think it's at its worst when it's being a prequel. And I know there's been a lot of complaints about... Uh, I think... Uh, David, I saw your your tweet after you saw it, uh, and that it's like the last moment of Josh Trank's Fantastic Four movie stretched out to to uh, like two hours and fifteen minutes, and which is true. But also, I felt like those parts they didn't come up as often as I was afraid they would. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into spoilers like, later. Yeah, I really gonna... want to address that point that you just made. Uh, yes. Because I violently disagree with it, but I um, but the the tweet that uh, Patrick is referring to is uh, I said remember that scene in Josh Trank's Fantastic Four when right at the end the thing looks out and says it's fantastic and that's how the crew got their name remember how that felt Solo is two hours and fifteen minutes of that continuously uh, and. What I mean by that statement. My favorite part of that tweet is, remember how that movie you probably didn't see? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I purposely chose I, – I know like no one saw that film, Jeff, and I purposely chose it in order to be disorienting and throw people off kilter. Um, but uh, what I mean by that is two things. First of all, it's explaining all this stuff that we didn't need to have explained in the first place. Like where does it stop, guys? Where does it stop? Like, how Han got his blaster, how he got his shoes, yeah. how he got his jacket, his belt. We got more it, movies to make, Dave. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like where Everything where does the origining you know, the end? Thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so that's one point, is is it's explaining all these things that nobody, it's answering questions nobody asked or cared to ask. And number two, it is answering those questions in the dumbest way imaginable. Like, in, in a way that cheapens and lessens and disrespects what I feel comes after. We talked about how Rogue One is a film that makes uh, A New Hope better. It, it explains a lot of the stuff that went into A New Hope. And this is a film that makes A New Hope worse, in my opinion. Um, you know, it, it, honestly, I actually had the thought experiment after I left the theater. Um, I, I, <laughs> I looked down at myself 
And I looked at all the things I was wearing and like the car I was driving and the sort of, I thought about the things that I say uh, generally. And I went, if I had to tell the story of who I am at this moment, Uh how I got here, like all of the affectations that make up me, it's a boring story and it, it doesn't, None of it is significant. Like the thing, the thing I happened to, the car I happened to be driving, it's just the car I decided to get. It's not like, that's just not how human stories are. The the belt I decided, maybe one thing here or there is, is insignificant. Like my wedding ring is a very significant (laughs) item that I wear, but that's, that's it. That's the sum total of these significant things that make up me. Anyway, they're they're probably not as significant as Han Solo's dice, which occupies about 30 minutes of runtime in this film. There's um, a lot. No, See, just, what this movie mm. actually needed is a scene where he realizes he doesn't like sleeves on his jacket and then <laughs> cuts them off. <laughs> I think that's exactly correct. Okay, Javinder Hardwar, your thoughts, and then let's dive into spoilers for this film. Yeah, I feel like you guys have pretty much said it all. Like, Jeff, I'm right there with you in this. Um, and I have to say, like, Patrick, like, I wish this movie were fun. Yeah. For me, like yeah. th- for me, this movie was all of the sort of like, why does this exist? Um, this feels really weird that we're going over all these plot lines. Um, and at the same time, it just was not fun. Like I didn't, I didn't care for any of the action um, and any of the like actual humor beats too, because like it wasn't funny. It was trying to be funny, but a lot of it felt forced and corny. Uh, this yeah, movie starts let's talk about and, that for a second. Like, uh-huh. what, what were the laughs like in your theater? I, I, I will say it felt like there were a bunch of things that were trying to be funny. I would say there were maybe, yeah, three to four moments in the entire film where the audience laughed. In, in I would in say my, so, like three yeah. or four. I saw it in a press screening last week, um, but it was a, it was a full house. You know, like people were primed to you know get into this movie. And I mean, three to four ain't bad for a movie for a movie that's not a comedy. I, I guess I hashtag guess. release the Lord and Miller cut, you know, like, yeah, release the, like, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, I, I also did not care for this project when they announced it. And with Lord and Miller attached, I was like, okay, yeah, these guys, they, like, they made 21 drum street work. You know, they made the Lego movie work. Like these guys can do anything. And this is like when they announced Ron Howard is like, this is going to be some vanilla ass bullshit. <laughs> and that's what it feels like. It feels like, you know, there's a chase sequence in this movie that feels like one of the slowest things I've ever seen, you know, be called a chase sequence. Um, there, there, there's like the, the typical like Star Wars, uh, I think, action set pieces, but they're all just really slow and badly shot. Like, it's hard to tell where people are. And uh, we'll get into this in spoilers, but there's like a direct callback to Empire, which just feels like I wanted to slap somebody as like in terms of how egregious it was as a callback. And also like how oh, you're just doing that thing that was done before, but worse. And that is basically the entire movie for me. Um, it felt like even though Lawrence Kasdan uh, and his son co-wrote this, uh, it, it doesn't have any of the spark of like, you know, his earlier Star Wars stuff at all. Like it, it just feels really trite the the opening kind of it introduces han solo as basically oliver twist you know and it, it doesn't feel like we're exploring any new territory there for him or the characters and you know halfway through this movie you realize this should be a lando movie or at least give lando something like i think lando and l3 are the like two bits of life in this movie and then everything else just feels like yeah a, a slow crawl to death I just I I think Lando is completely wasted in this movie. I don't. But at least I don't... He, he like he's having fun. 
right? This is somebody who's like, okay, I, I see what this bullshit is, and I'm going to have fun with this character. Elden Ehrenreich, you know, I really liked him in Hail Caesar. I thought he would be fine as Han Solo, but, like, this is a... It is as if, you know, uh, the origin of this Han Solo is basically like he was, like, this this goody-two-shoes guy all along. He just happened to be, like, Oliver Twist. And, like, so, you know, what happened to it later in life kind of formed him into that uh, rebel... Uh, thief that we know from the original movies and it just feels way too cookie cutter like none of this stuff feels earned or interesting but yeah we got a lot to talk about in spoilers. yeah and i don't i don't think before we get there though i i don't think you know patrick's uh video essay brings up a lot of i think pertinent points but i i don't think my qualms are i'm a star wars fan and this isn't my right. fan vision right. i really don't i think it's different than that and but it's interesting to me that from a sort of macro franchise level, <laughs> the last two Star Wars movies to be released, one of them says, kill the past. <laughs> <laughs> and then literally the next movie is like, hey, man, remember the past? This past, past is great. great. Remember how let's, awesome the past was? Um, let's just revel in the past. Yeah, agreed. Also, Devendra, I mean, you know, you put down Ron Howard. Uh, agreed, some of his later work is pretty uninspiring, like the Da Vinci movies and and so on. Uh, but he did make Rush in 2013. That was a pretty awesome film, I thought. And uh, he's made some of my favorite films of all time, including he, Apollo he 13. He did make Rush. But yeah, he made those other movies, you know, a long time ago. I think, yeah. like, directors, like, any, like, artists change. Artists evolve over time. I think Ron Howard, like evolved into somebody he can make a movie he can finish the movie which is what they needed um he but is a solid he, i think the the term yeah. often used to refer to him is journeyman director yes. right like yes. he, he's a very skilled uh director but that it may be difficult to tell kind of an original vision from some of his later work and um, I th- the script didn't help like honestly like just the entire setup of this movie is just really some boring you know stuff that we've seen before in many other franchises um yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's, let's dive into it. But the, the the only other thing I want to just provide some context here is, according to this Variety article, um, a source close to the production said, "quote In their minds, Phil and Chris were hired to make a movie that was unexpected and would take a risk, not right. something that would just service the fans. They wanted it to be fresh, new, emotional, surprising, and unique. These guys looked at Han as a maverick, so they wanted to make a movie about a maverick. But at every turn, when they went to take a risk, it was met with a no." End quote. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, these Star Wars movies are getting really expensive. There's many directors that have been removed from them at this point. Um, I think uh, right, Gareth Edwards was uh, <laughs> removed from Rogue One. Lord of Miller removed from this film. Josh Trank was removed from uh, the Boba Fett Whatever film. Whatever he was going to make. Which now right. has uh, uh, James Mangold is going to be at the at the helm of it, which uh, Patrick you mentioned, um, and I guess that's something that I'm excited about. That's something, but also James Mangold potentially making another genre western. I love James Mangold, but Lo- like Logan is it? Logan is like where do you take genre westerns? I'm not sure what we're going to do again with Boba Fett. I think there also, is a thirty percent chance that yeah. James Mangold will not be accredited director on. <laughs> Oh, I know like That's the people rough. they kick out are the young you know the the young guys that they bring on for their fresh creative vision and then when they realize oh no we don't want fresh creative vision or something then they bring in the older folks like that's that's been the cycle so also, I guess that's has, true other than like Ryan other Johnson. movies lined up yeah. Doesn't he doesn't Mangold have at least one other movie lined up first that he's mm. working on? I just kind of assume that like when they announce Star Wars movies or people working on Star Wars movies, kind of like with DC movies, that <laughs> you know, there's like a forty percent chance that movie will actually get made right, with right. them making it. 
Yeah, right. no, I think that's uh, that's a good percentage. So, and uh, uh, the other thing I want to I want to bring up is that I feel like there's this weird narrative that is created by all this background uh, job <laughs> uh, <laughs> reporting that I think is kind of unfair and weird. You know, like just because this movie maybe isn't satisfying to us or some people doesn't mean that the Lord and Miller version would have been better. You know, it, it, there's no, it, it, I feel like there's this weird assumption that, oh, if this version didn't work, the one they were working on is the one that would have worked and the studio ruined it or the, you know, it, it, there's nothing to say that that's the case. There's nothing to say that these guys, just because they were quote unquote, were being daring with the character or I mean, he was a maverick would have been, it would have worked any better or worse. It, it's, it's a lot of assumption that I think tends to happen with, with fans and critics that, Oh, you know, these parts of Justice League are Joss Whedon because we like these parts and those are Zack Snyder because we don't like it. It's a, such a weird assumption thing that yeah. kind of I mean, it's weird. It's a little me. reductive though, Jeff. Like you like those Phil Lord and Chris Miller movies. You you understand like what makes those movies work. And I think you can apply that mentality of like, oh man, 21 Jump Street. Who the hell needs that? Who wants that reboot? And then you say the life and the humor and the like perspective and like the just the freshness they brought to that. It's not hard to apply that to something like Solo. That's all. Like that's the movie I'm imagining in my head. Um, maybe it's a little unfair, but this is that's what happened. To kind of uh, buttress Jeff's point here, uh, this variety piece again, which is kind of th- doesn't feel like yeah. it was super sourced well. Like it doesn't seem like no. they have like a ton of sources. Uh, but they talk about how Lord and Miller. Uh, it's it's not just the direction they took it in. It's also like production wise that they had challenges mm-hmm. uh, executing at the level that Kathleen Kennedy, the uh, executive producer, wanted. Uh, according to one crew member, Howard had a firmer grip on what he wanted and how he wanted to shoot it. Under Howard, one second unit sequence took up half the stage space at Pinewood Studios that it did under Lord and Miller and a fraction of the time. Um, and according to uh, perhaps the same source or crew member, Lord and Miller drew uh, Kathleen Kennedy's ire for stretching days out with experimentation. So, right. uh, so it's basically like extreme. It sounds like extremely costly what Lord and Miller were doing, and that ultimately, like between vision and also uh, kind of execution, what, yeah, execution, like the the production timelines that they wanted to hit, the the budgets that they wanted to hit, uh, it just didn't seem like a good fit. So, um, ag- agreed with Jeff that it's not just like oh. These guys are going to make a great film, and then, um, and then now it's a crappy film because of studio intervention. Like we, we just don't know enough. But there is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of differing opinions on what would have been a better film. So, okay, let's dive into spoilers for Solo: A Star Wars Story, starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're trying to see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right. So what I I did with the uh, our Avengers Infinity War review, uh, which I thought was really helpful in kind of dissecting some of the things we liked and didn't like about that film, was read the Wikipedia plot summary of the film and then uh, kind of dive into each section of the film, talk about what we thought about it. So let's just do that. Uh, and of course, this is going to spoil uh, spoil the entire film. So, starting at the beginning, quote on the shipbuilding world of Corellia, 
A young scrum rat and aspiring pilot named Han and his lover Kira long to escape the clutches of the local criminal gangs. They successfully bribe an imperial officer who grants them passage on an outgoing transport, but Kira is apprehended by their pursuers before she can board. Han vows to return for her and with no means of income, joins the Imperial Navy as a flight cadet with the Imperial recruiting officer dubbing him Han Solo in absence of a surname. Uh, all oh, right, that, Patrick- that right there yeah. to me is maybe my least favorite moment of the entire movie i'm with you uh, it, it is it is uh, i would argue it is one of the top 5 top 3 worst moments of the entire star wars franchise i mean yeah. Yeah, i, yeah, I yeah. think it's um like right up there with you know sand is coarse on on your skin or whatever like it it is pr- providing an answer to a question that no one asked and in such a dumb way like like so solo it's it's literal it's so literal it's like the so martha literal. moment of this movie like your name is solo because you're alone yeah. I, I'm, my also, mind, literally like, this character that we love was just basically named by the imperials <laughs> not only that <laughs> but han solo like that is a very consistent name with every other star wars universe right. sounding name right. there's no there's no person who was like well, that that must be have been given to him weird because that's so different than all the other characters in Star Wars. It is. It, 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 you're so right. It is an answer in search of a question. No one thought that Han Solo sounded like something that needed to be explained, right? Because Obi Wan Kenobi and all the it's every name. It just sounds yeah. like a Star Wars name. Hey, Obi Wan, why'd you go with Ben of all things? I don't know. <laughs> On a character level. Wouldn't it, it, he has to name himself? This is a like you know character who's headstrong, like is always full of himself and cocky. To have him be defined for the entire franchise by an imperial name, that kind of that definitely threw like, me off. Offhandedly movie. in the spur yeah, of the moment, yeah, too. Whatever you're so you now. you uh, you are often up in uh, in spaceships, uh, walking among the sky. <laughs> I know what I'll name you. Yeah. Like, imagine if that was the explanation. It just is, uh, it, like, a part of me died inside. I'm not joking. Yep. Like, when, yeah. I, no, when that happened, I was awful. like, I'm, I'm dying right now. I you know, like, an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I left the theater, and I was just like, I don't want to be Soul exited body. Okay, Patrick Willems, uh, yes. putting, putting that horrible stain on this franchise aside, uh, what did you think of the opening sequence? Like, were, were you kind of into this world? What did you think of... Uh, what was that one, that uh, character's name? The snake that came out of the water, you know, like oh, uh, Lady Proxima, yeah. which great which, design, yeah. which threw me off just because Infinity War came out so recently, and that movie has a character named Proxima Midnight. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, although her name isn't said in the movie, but uh, but yeah, anyway, it feels w- funny being like the person who was sort of most positive about the movie, <laughs> even though I kind of agree with what everyone is saying. But I was surprised at the beginning how much I enjoyed it right off the bat. And I think part of it might be that I just kind of, especially because Alden Ehrenreich is so different than Harrison Ford and is not even really doing a Harrison Ford impression, I just kind of separated this from the Han Solo that I knew and just didn't think about that too much for most of it. And I thought this was like a a fairly effective opening that it hit the ground running. It established like character motivations like right off the bat. And uh, and I, I liked the little world. I liked the sort of Fagan-esque like snake lady who lives in the water. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, I thought uh, Aaron Rick and Amelia Clark had solid chemistry, and I liked the uh, like them getting separated there, and it just like I felt like the 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 stakes for the character and like the motivations like they they worked for me, and and yeah, I was actually like fairly into it from the beginning, and then there's that moment when he gets his name that you know kind of. <laughs> Uh, made my my heart sink a bit, and uh, <laughs> and then it, also, can I? Since we're talking about the very beginning, one thing that I feel like we have to address is the opening titles yep. for mm. the spinoff movies because they haven't settled on a format for the non episodes. Yep. For like how the title appears, and and I think they should. I'm not. I'm still not sure if it should be the opening crawl every time, but I think they should figure out some kind of format. But having a, like, bright CGI title felt very, un- felt like a Star Wars fan film. Right. Right mm. in that, in that, like, opening shot. Uh, and, I, I thought you were talking about, like, the blue, te- the blue explanatory text. You have no problem oh, with that, right? I'm still not, not sure even how necessary uh, that was. <laughs> and I'm not sure how I feel about that, but just, like, the title itself, the, like, the, the glowing... Uh, CGI solo that like moves yeah. through the camera. Yeah. Th- that uh, I-, I was not into that as a choice. I would have rather had just the title over space. It's <laughs> weird that they have blue explanation, you know, ex- explanation text uh, when you literally have a explanation text as part of the the idea of Star Wars. You know, like what? Why isn't there a crawl? It's not like those have been sacrosanct. Previously, I mean, every Star Wars video game has a crawl. Every, every you know, Marvel comic has, uh, yeah. like, its its recap page is a crawl. I actually, an, I actually like uh, the fact that they save the crawls for like the the proper Skywalker saga episodes. I, I think I'm like in the minority on this, but I like that. These... I, I mean, I wish they would ex- experiment a bit more. That's yeah, the thing. They, they, than, but this is this is kind of yeah. experimentation. This is this, uh-huh. like when the blue text. It's usually a long time ago in a galaxy far, far yeah, away yeah, in blue yeah. text. And then this is the first time I've seen in a film where they continue the blue text, right? So I was like, yeah. oh, this is interesting. It's a dot, 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 and then it picks right up. It's right, like, it yeah, picks up. It explains what happens. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting. But uh, I agreed with you that the CG uh, solo logo was pretty chintzy. It just feels very un-Star Wars, yeah. which is funny because it seemed like, you know, with Lord and Miller's version, they were straying too much from Star Wars, and they tried to get it back on track and be very Star Wars, that they have a, a title uh, sequence that seems very modern and un-Star Wars. And uh, it's like, I feel like with that title sequence, they also should have had like a, I don't know, like a more like rock-esque score, which they didn't. Mm, yeah. And it just, it just again, <laughs> like the, the title sequence is like the least of the movie's problems, but it just, <laughs> but it, we do it, need to it talk about the odd it for choice. Hour. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I will say for this whole opening sequence, like it was, it felt really jarring the way we were thrust into this world. Like when he meets up with uh, Kira, it it doesn't feel like they actually have a connection. It's like, oh. It feels like Amelia Clark is going like, oh, we're doing Star Wars now. OK, OK, I'm on this. <laughs> like, let's just play this game um, because, yeah, it didn't feel it felt really forced. Like, oh, by the way, we're both orphans. We're doing this thing together. We're going to steal this thing. Let's go. And yeah, it just felt really clunky. So for I, me, like, yeah, the movie didn't really click until like a Chewbacca appeared. Uh, if it clicked at all, you know, I want to talk specifically about something Patrick brought up with regard to Alden Ehrenreich, because I'm a fan of him. I think, I think mm-hmm. he is a really fun actor, very charming. Uh, I like him. I think he has a bright future and I don't want to criticize anything he's doing because I think this is kind of one of those impossible jobs where 
you know, you have one of the most iconic characters in cinema history. You have one of the most iconic actors in cinema history, and you're trying to be a young version of him. I appreciate the choice of just saying, I'm going to be me. I'm not going to try to do Han- uh, Harrison Ford. I get it. I, there's no, I have no criticism sure. for him, but at no point, I, I had the exact opposite reaction that Patrick did because I kept trying to tell myself I'm looking at Han Solo. Yeah, me too. And I, I never worked. It yeah. never worked. I never felt like I was looking at that guy. And I never felt that with, uh, you know, with young Obi-Wan, with Ewan McGregor's performance. And I know that Ewan McGregor definitely chose to do much more of an impression of Alec yeah, Guinness. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that is what Aaron Reich should have done. I just, whatever the tone of the movie, what, how it was shot, how he was presented, it just never felt like I, I just kept trying to convince myself I'm looking at Han Solo. This is Han Solo, and it never worked. And that was a problem for me. Yeah, it, it feels like a school production of Star Wars. Basically, <laughs> oh, like that is harsh. It, at uh, least in terms of the performance, right? Like I'm, I'm doing Han Solo, but I'm also doing my own thing. And I don't know. There, there's more to talk. I, about. I agree with I agree with Jeff that in uh, I try I kept trying to like every time I saw Alden Eric Enric on the scene on the screen, which is basically the whole film. I kept thinking to myself, okay, this is Han Solo, <laughs> right? And it, yeah. it never yep. really took, you know? Um, anyway, but I think Pat- Patrick's yeah. approach, if, if you're wa- going to watch this film, I think Patrick's approach is the right one, which is just don't try to connect this to the other Han Solo you know. Just think of this as a whole new thing, right? The, the sad thing, though, is that you look at, like, Donald Glover's take on Lando, and it's like, oh, that is fucking Lando. Yeah. Like, he is just, like, embodying the soul of what that character is, even though like Lando, like we barely, he had very little screen time, but he, you know, I, I think Billy D made that screen time count. Like he had a, he had a large amount of presence and same thing in this movie. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. I never had to try to convince myself that was Lando. Yeah. I, I think the big think problem with this film Sorry. is that, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, brilliant actor, mm-hmm. but so Han Solo is the least interesting character slash performance <laughs> in this film. In my opinion, right, like yeah. compared to any Woody Harrelson, I'd rather watch a Woody Harrelson, Tandy Newton movie, 100%. you know, Amelia yeah. Clark, Paul Bettany movie, you know, like Lurie and Lando. Yeah, yeah. like a- any of those other movies are more interesting than the movie we got here, in my opinion. But Patrick, what are you going to say? I mean, I-, I honestly think just like trying to be Harrison Ford specifically is a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. Like no one's ever con- going to convincingly be. I mean, I think like, you know, River Phoenix is fine in the opening scene of like uh, Last Crusade, <laughs> but it's also like it's a scene. Yeah, and, yeah. and he's also and he's much younger at while like Aaron Rick is now like five years younger than Ford was in the first Star Wars. And so and it is and, and Ford not that that he's necessarily like better than other actors like you know Alec Guinness or Billy D Williams but there's something about him that is impossible to replicate and impossible to even like I've never even really seen anyone do a good Harrison Ford impression yeah it's it, it it's it's so hard to like I don't think anyone could really be a convincing young Harrison Ford and the weird thing is like I think even Harrison Ford in real life has a hard time being the Harrison Ford in movies too. <laughs> she does. Have you seen him That's in so interviews? True. Like he is just such a, it's like, eh, whatever. Yeah. So it's like, how do you capture if, if he, if he, he can't capture and this is not a yeah. knock against him. It's just like the way he interviews <laughs> is hilariously deadpan. Um, no, let, watch the yeah. force awakens. Harrison yes. Ford can't do Han Solo anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyway, we got to move on. We have a lot more plot to cover guys. So, uh, yeah, but at the, at the end of the opening sequence, Han Solo gets his last name 
And uh, yeah. in my opinion, the movie never recovers from that. But let's <laughs> let's continue on anyway. Three years later, Han has been expelled from the Imperial Flight Academy for insubordination. I'm just going to stop right there. You just passed over the most interesting part of this yeah. film. Right? Where, where, give us a montage. Give yeah. us something. Montage. It, it just feels like that whole thing, you know, that's like, you could. You, this movie could have been like Top Gun or something, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway. That would have been so much more interesting. Well, not more interesting. I think it would have been a really interesting take. Yeah. Uh, but maybe they're setting up for uh, a prequel. Yeah. <laughs> the prequel takes in between this prequel. Yeah. Um, but who will play young Alden Ehrenreich? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Good an impossible question. job. Um, and he's serving as an intru- infantryman during a, a battle on the planet Mimban. He encounters a gang of criminals posing as Imperial soldiers led by Tobias Beckett. He blackmails them into allowing him to join, but Beckett has him arrested and condemned to battle a beast held in captivity. The beast is revealed to be a Wookiee named Chewbacca. Owing to Han's ability to speak... Shariwook. Sorry. <laughs> the two stage a fight for the benefit of their captors and escape after collapsing their cell. A sympathetic Beckett rescues them and enlists the two for a planned train heist to steal a, a shipment of the hyperfuel coaxium. Oh, I just want to say a positive <laughs> thing. I mean, the, I feel like I am in the role that a lot of that you guys were in uh, during our Infinity War where it, it came across more negative than I think you felt about the film. Um, I, I think there's a lot to like in this movie. I think it is a fun crowd-pleasing movie, it just didn't work for me on, on a lot of levels. But some of the things I liked, I think it's cool that you see in a movie that has war in the title, you see a like World War II style or even World War I style trench, mm-hmm. dark, dirty, filthy war scene. I thought that was a kind of an interesting thing we've never really seen in a Star War before. Uh, I mean, it felt a little maybe too close to real World War Two, World War One. Yeah. But I just thought it was an interesting look and feel that foggy sort of fog of war, not being able to see very very far away, and and everything grimy and and f- filthy and kind of depressing. It was, I thought that was an interesting vision uh, to put in this world, this universe of of films. I, I think um, mm-hmm. it is. Definitely a cool visual, but I think it kind of makes no sense at all in, in the context yeah. of Star Wars. Like uh, this, th- I, I referred to a train heist happening, right? And I saw this movie with my wife, and she was saying how, okay, guys, we are the Empire, and we live in a universe where <laughs> hyperspeed travel is possible using spaceships, right? Like you can travel faster than the speed of light. Uh we need to transport this ridiculously valuable material over a vast distance. Best way to do that, obviously using a train through treacherous mountains. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Most definitely. It's just like when you, when you have like spaceships, the idea of dudes fighting it out in trench warfare just doesn't make as much sense. I, I mean, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to put my nerd hat on and put your nerd hat on, Jeff. Get it on. If you if you think of faster than light travel, the idea is that this substance needs to move from one place on this planet to another place on this planet. And you think of moving faster than light travel, you're not you're not using faster than light travel to go from San Francisco to London. Sure. Yeah, I, I know, Jeff, but you still have a spaceship. You know, you what have saying? spaceships like, <laughs> that are stabilized and don't have like tracks and stuff. Like, <laughs> look at a drone. Look at a drone versus like even like I think like a maglev train. And there, there's a decent amount of stability there even today. 
Yeah. Okay. Good. Good try, though. Yeah. Jeff. Good try, though. Okay. I'm just uh, saying, just space tra- the the uh, hyper faster than light travel specifically is uh, right. I, I was just using that as an example of how advanced the technology bad, is, Jeff. I wasn't saying example. you should actually go faster than light to do this. <laughs> anyway, um, guys, the important thing here is that train heists are always a good thing to have in movies. So <laughs> even if it's like a sci-fi world. I'm cool with any reason for there to be a train. A hundred percent agree, Patrick. A hundred percent. Like th- this is my favorite sequence in the entire movie. Definitely. And it's because of it's a space western. We've never seen a space train heist. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I agree that it is my favorite. It's it's the most well done sequence in my opinion. Like it looks awesome. Uh, there's a lot of tension in the scene, even though, like I said, sci- scientifically makes no sense. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, the I mean, super the rotating train, is the rotating cool train. Idea. There's like stages to the heist. You know, yeah. there's like this outside wild card of these marauders that we later find out what they are. Uh, it's very cool. So I think we all we all kind of enjoyed the, yeah. the train hype. Definitely. But by the, best. the way, shout out uh, just to both of those scenes that you guys were talking about. The dirty sci-fi war. And a sci-fi train heist, uh, you know, Firefly did it pretty good too. Mm. Uh, a long time ago, David and Firefly did those exact things. <laughs> Firefly opens with a dirty ass trench warfare military scene, so it is. It, it was just funny to me. I guess like maybe the uh, the sheen of the you know the originality of it just didn't didn't reflect for me. Also, that train sequence, guys, like it's it's a fine visual, but it's not executed well like it's not like shot well it's very confusing like where people are at certain times like the best thing about it is that they you know didn't explain the ma- the like gravity uh shoes like the fact that they can stay connected to it mm. but beyond that like uh, i thought it was pre- i thought it was pretty competent devendra like i i didn't have uh, uh that much difficulty understanding like quite what was uh going on but uh you know this is I- the problem with the with the chunking that we're doing here because we've yeah. completely skipped over han speaking chewbacca sure yes. The whole well, mud planet. We're, Jeff, we're yeah. not skipping over it. We can, always, we can always go back. It's all good. So what, what are your <laughs> thoughts on that scene? I, I mean, okay, I love Chewbacca in this movie. I think, it's, I think Chewbacca is a very fun part of this movie, and it's the one thing that in my sort of, uh, you know, grand macro level complaint about the movie that it's a movie about Han Solo, it's the one thing that would be missing if you didn't make a movie about Han Solo, right, is you wouldn't have Chewbacca. But, of course, maybe you could come up with a cool – character whatever anyway i love chewbacca in this movie i hate with every fiber of my being how we see han speak wookie because it's every goofy kids version of speaking wookie and it just it comes off as ridiculous and goofy and like that's i mean that's the martha moment is like oh you speak wookie yeah, it's this movie. This it, movie has multiple Martha moments. I think is what we're learning. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. That scene is ridiculous because it it the the way it's executed makes it sound really silly. But also, guys, Chewbacca understands English, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the, the through line through the entire franchise is Han speaks English to Chewbacca. So why would anyway? It it, it just well, I is, think that I think he's supposed to be showing not not that Chewbacca didn't understand him until that moment more that Chewbacca sees him as a sympathetic guy not a not he, an enemy. he treats him as a person right yeah sure but couldn't i guess couldn't he have achieved that by speaking in a language Chewbacca understood which is english <laughs> anyway well i think the difference is that you know everyone else treated him as a monster and here you know right. he's like oh you have a language and yeah, yeah. i i mean i thought the uh, the, the verbalization of of Wookiees or whatever the language is was dumb, but I don't know that 
this is like the, my favorite section of the movie. Maybe <laughs> just like I like I like the war on the mud planet. I like the train heist. And I think part of this is just I like Star Wars in general. And I like that. I like it when it's dirty and grimy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I like it when we just see like the normal person experience. And so I liked kind of diving into like a sort of Starship Troopers style, just like chaotic war. And uh, and just like seeing like the grunts on the ground and in, in, like with the empires kind of taking over some other planet and uh, and of all these sort of unnecessary explanations that this movie has, maybe the only one that I was pretty cool with was Han and Chewie meeting. Right. And uh, and and yeah, and uh, I, you know, I, I kind of liked Han like blackmailing his way into the crew and then and then the heist and uh yeah, I, 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 I was, again, watching this last night, I was like, whoa, I'm enjoying this more, far more than I expected to. Mm. Well, I always imagine, I mean, this is one of those things that I hate coming out of my own mouth of the, as a fan, I always imagined it happening differently, but. <laughs> but you're like, about I'm to gonna, become just that. Right <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, you, you imagine that, that Han saved Chewie in some way for him to be so loyal to him. Pointing out that this pole holds up the ceiling <laughs> yeah, felt the like best. a very, very minor thing to do as far as saving. I mean, Chewie did all the heavy lifting and work here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Chewie's a pilot. Like, he should know, like, basic physics. Like, I can yeah. crumble this whole thing by just knocking down this pole. Yeah, because he's he also referred to, like, some kind of life point. debt, right? You think, yeah. you think, yeah, if you think if, if Chewie was down there and pissed off that he's down there, maybe he would try hitting everything in the room. I have super strength. Yeah. What do I do with this? <laughs> uh, yeah, but in the in the original fr- uh, franchise, they referred to like a, a life debt of some kind, right? Uh, right. Yes. Between Han and, and Chewie. So yeah, I, it, again, this is kind of like it, it's extremely underwhelming when you find out what what caused that life debt, right? Uh, or or and maybe it's a retcon. Maybe they people's. forgot about it and it's a retcon mm-hmm. of some kind. I, I forgot know. about the life debt. Yeah. Never forget the life debt, dude. Never forget the life debt, guys. <laughs> you mean uh, the and life debt between Jar Jar Binks and Qui Gon Jinn? Yeah, exactly. The same one. The, the very same. <laughs> there's that. There's that scene where he says Chewbacca. I can't say you know uh, three oh, syllables God. every single time uh, I talk to you. We got to make it two. You know, uh, which is also extremely cringeworthy. I thought extremely cringeworthy. A how hard is it to say Chewbacca? It's not. <laughs> B, that's not how nicknames happen. That's not how nicknames happen. I'm sorry. We don't go, oh, David. You know what? I'm going to call you Dave. <laughs> on. To be fair, Poe po Dameron did the same thing in Force Awakens, right? But also, it, it makes sense there. Because his name is literally a code name, right? So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Also, you know, um... <laughs> Also, we didn't have we didn't watch a later film with Finn and wonder how he got his name. Um, okay, let's move on. Beckett reveals he was ordered to steal the shipment for Dryden Voss, leader of the Crimson Dawn criminal syndicate, and now he, and he now fears Voss's wrath. Uh, Han and Chewbacca volunteer to help him steal another shipment. They travel to Voss's yacht, where Han is confused to discover Kira, who confesses that she's a member of Crimson Dawn. Han announces a plan to steal unprocessed coaxium from the mines on Kessel. Voss insists on Kira accompanying them. I thought uh, Beckett losing his wife Val was felt really kind of glossed over to me. I don't know. Yep. I, I guess I don't know what else I expected, but he gets Tandy over that deserves very better. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I felt more. I felt like the the movie paid more attention to Lando losing his robot than yes. um, oh, which so much. losing his dramatic his wife. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. As much as I love L three, like that, that was such a weird tonal shift. But anyway, yeah. Um, and then so then this this space yacht. Now, one of the things I actually really like about this <laughs> film, which I haven't really been focusing on, is. Uh, I think the the f- uh, film looks really good. Like it, the visual style, it feels really cohesive, and they introduce some really interesting designs, like this uh, yacht. I you love know, like the this yacht. space yacht. Yeah, I thought it looked really cool. Like yeah, it was vertical, vertical, which is not something. Yeah, everything you, in Star Wars is usually very horizontal. Um, but this is like a vertical. <laughs> so they went up. They went ah. in a different dimension this time. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Now, uh, people may, may or may not be aware, Michael K. Williams, who played Omar in The Wire, was originally supposed to be the villain. They actually shot the whole movie with him. Um, but then when Ron Howard took over, they had to redo it all, and he was unavailable. So they replaced him with Paul Bettany. Uh, I, I do think I it might have some... been a more interesting film with Michael K. Yeah. Williams as that villain character. Uh, I heard some interesting things about what that character would have been yeah. with Michael K. Williams, yeah. and I'm not sure I'm allowed to say them, but... Uh, yeah. It would have been, let's just say, um, much more visual effects than mm. what we saw. Interesting. Which I think would have been interesting. As opposed to just yeah. like some face paint, which is what yeah. uh, Paul Bettany had. Yeah. Um, so uh, Pat- Patrick yeah. Willems, uh, you know, in this scene, we're, in- we're reintroduced to Kira and then we're introduced to kind of the main bad in the film, uh, which is Paul Bettany, who plays uh, Dryden Voss. So what do you think of this whole sequence? What do you think of their re- reunion? You know, did that work for you? I, uh, again, it did. Uh, this this part also worked for me. And again, I, I, I don't know. I just sort of like bought the uh, the relationship between Han and Kira like from from the beginning. But also, and I, I feel like I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I have like sort of like bigger like opinions about kind of the structure of the movie as a whole mm-hmm. because this is very much just. I mean, and I think it it would be better if it focused more on this it is basically a very classical kind of like almost like 1950s or 60s like heist movie just mm-hmm. transposed onto star wars and you know i mean it's basically a movie about like you know the characters being indebted to this crime boss and they have to do one big dangerous score in order to like you know to, to be square with him and they've got you know a uh a like I guess like sort of unknown or I guess like 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 a morally questionable woman from the the hero's past returning and now working with them and we don't entirely know her motives and and I think and I, again I don't want to get to the ending but because I've been thinking since last night constantly about like how I would rewrite parts of this to I think make it function a bit better and I think with not a ton of work uh, it could work much better and so this this stuff all worked for me because it's pulling from like very classical tropes and uh but putting them in in a a cool looking space world and um i i but i i dug paul bettany i thought i I liked his design i thought he was having a lot of fun i love the uh the yacht and that that's part of it i remember thinking while when the yacht shows up and they get i'm just thinking like I like Star Wars a lot. I love the way all this looks. <laughs> this looks great. I'm having fun. Wow, look at that. Everything's gold. Oh, there's like the uh, the singer within her weird like alien in, in like a tank of water, like like backup singer. That's great. <laughs> and they I'm managed enjoying to make, this. 
Imagine make the song feel very alien. Yeah, too. like very yeah. atonal. Like it doesn't feel like it adheres to uh, regular like Earth music yeah. sensibilities. I thought it was really interesting. So, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, also Paul Bettany's little like throwing star laser thingy, I thought was kind of cool. Like that weapon. Those that also he uses. those looked really similar to some of the knives that is it the Praetorian yes, guards. Yes, the Praetorian had guards in the Last, in Last Jedi. Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, like I was wondering if it was meant to be the same kind of weapon, right? Because with Aren't like they, the glowing all, like, red vibro edges. weapons, right, or whatever you call them, yeah. yeah. Blades. All right. Uh, uh, that was cool. So I, I mean, I think there there are definitely moments about this whole sequence that worked. I think the reunion was mm-hmm. was odd for me. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. I think I think here's the problem I had is the the reunion scene was fine, but I guess I had just invented this entire backstory. <laughs> for uh han and kira in my right. head and the reunion you were did filling not, in the gaps that the movie yeah i was filling in the gaps yeah. of the movie and the reunion did not live up to that and what i mean by that is yeah like i thought these characters had been together for you know decades like right. they they'd known Where each they other grew for up decades. together yeah yeah they were raised together and they'd fallen in love in like under the tutelage of proxima or whatever and they've been together for decades, and this is like an extremely potent love, so potent that when um, she's uh, taken from him, you know, at the train station or whatever, she's like, "Go, like, go without me." She, there's no like, it, she doesn't even blink. She's like, you know, she, extremely selfless. Meanwhile, right. he's doing the same thing. He's like, you know, he's trying to go back for her at peril to himself. Um, so I'm, I'm like, wow, you've convinced me. This love runs deep, man. Yeah. I mean, deep. That's his whole motivation. Just yeah, to, this whole to motivation. get a ship to get go back and rescue her. But, but then when they meet, it the, is so underwhelming. Like it, it just doesn't mm-hmm. feel like if if I was wait if I if I'd been with someone for like 10, 15 years and I was waiting like three years to be with them and I met them again, I would not play it as yeah. cool as they did in this it's scene. Like, hey, you know, we're at the same party. Cool. Yeah. Cool, no, cool, that's cool. that's why I think it does work for me is sure. because yeah. it is so jarring and she is so different that it is completely different than how he expected it to go down. Like she sure. is com- a completely different person and, and she's like, Oh no, what you expected us rushing into each other's arms ain't happening because right, right. I'm in a new world now. I, I liked that about it. There's, there's totally that. Like I, I want to disrupt like that expectation, but I think the way it's executed in the movie is just like, Oh cool. Hey, we're here and you're very different. It feels like this feels like, I, I don't know, like maybe reshoot material or something like where they couldn't quite craft that moment to make it more exciting or dramatic. I, I agree I with know. Devendra. Yeah. So Jeff, I totally get what they were going for. I get that. She's really like, he's supposed to be really into it. Yeah. And that she's yeah. not right. Cause she's like, she's in a whole different situation. Like with, I, with, I get with, the, with yeah. the added layer of, you can't blow our cover here. We can't. Right. You know. Right. I get that. But just like nothing about what I know about the solo character until that point leads me to think that that's how he's like, he's going to play it the way he played it in that scene. Right. Um, but that's just that's just me. Like it, it, you had a good reaction to it; it's cool. It didn't quite work for me. I kind of agree with Devendra. Like there should have been something a little bit more about Han trying to like restrain himself or like being really uh, torn or ambivalent. You know, something in the solo character that I don't think was quite there. Or just like some wit to their banter, some wit to the introduction, like something. Yeah, I don't know. It just feels like oh, this happens because we're both here at this party now. So can I just say one of what I think is one of mm-hmm. the strangest things about just this movie in general? Uh, because I, I assume you guys have seen, like, because it's been reported before, that apparently before Disney even bought Lucasfilm, Kasdan, like, 
was ma- like working on this movie or right, wanted to make right. it. This has been a passion project of his for so long. And, uh, and I, that seems to be like some of the tension between him and Lord and Miller because he was like, this is like my script that I, this is like, I want this to be my, my last Star Wars thing. And now you're changing it into something else. And as and while I like kind of generally enjoyed the movie, this as a, a passion project of his for so long is baffling to me. This does not seem like a story that anyone needed to, to tell. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand what it was. Like, I, th- I think it was like he and George Lucas had talked about this together, like, like uh, I don't know, like 10 years ago or something like that. And, um, and yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't get what was why Kasdan was so invested in the story about Han Solo making the Kessel Run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we we will certainly get to that in a moment. But I agree that there's. I, I think Patrick. You know, one of the things is we don't know how different the final film is from the original vision. Do you know what I mean? Like true, but it, it does seem like this is what Kasdan kind of wanted to do right. all along. Yeah, I, well, that, that's that's. I think the 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 way I interpret what you're saying, Patrick, is that. Some people, I I saw this uh, very early at a at a press screening, and I had some friends who were like, "Don't tell me anything, but what did you think?" And 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 my response was, "What what you think this movie is is exactly what it is, <laughs> right?" You know what I mean? There there's and in the sense of like, oh, I have to tell the story of young Han, Han Solo. It's like it hits all the beats that you would expect, and it does nothing subversive or interesting or unexpected. It's just, and in, in that sense, I don't understand why somebody would be like, yes, I have to tell how they did the Kessel run because it's a mildly exciting right. action sequence. I have about, a great set yeah. piece in mind for the Kessel run. That is not just empire all over again. Come on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very odd thing to say. This is an essential segment when it does feel so paint by numbers to me. But, uh, so I agree with you, Patrick. Okay, I mean, like, yeah. I guess what I, I I get why Kasdan loves Han Solo, and he did do so much to define that character with his work uh, on Empire. But I, but but I mean, and also he got to co-write Han Solo's like final story. So I don't understand what it was about this that he was just like that he cared that he cared so much about because it's right. It's like it's exactly what you'd think it would be. There's nothing and surprising. Worse than the I mean, I don't mean to jump ahead at all, but worse than the Kessel Run is. The poker game, the game of uh, Sabak, uh, <laughs> which we'll get to, but it's like there is literally nothing interesting about it. Well, let's let's and, talk about it right now. To procure to procure a ship for the heist, Kira introduces the team to Lando Calrissian, an accomplished smuggler and pilot. Han, uh, Han challenges Lando to a game of Sabak, with the wager being Lando's ship, reputed to be the fastest in the galaxy. Lando uses sleight of hand to win, but is convinced to join the mission in exchange for a share of the profits. The team boards his ship, the Millennium Falcon, and head for Kessel. After reaching the planet and infiltrating the mine, Lando's droid co-pilot, L337, instigates a riot. They use the confusion to steal consignment of unprocessed volatile coaxium, but L3 is fatally shot in the escape. With Lando injured, Han pilots a ship knowing they must make the infamous Kessel run in less than 20 parsecs if they are to reach Voss before the coaxium explodes. Han's prodigious piloting allows them to evade an imperial blockade and they rendezvous with Voss on the planet Severine. Okay, so... That's like 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah, right there. 40 minutes. So, Sabak, uh, you were just saying how it's completely uninteresting, Jeff. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, yeah. First of all, how does Han win the game? He's just good at playing that game that he's never played before for some reason. <laughs> uh, 
the literally there's no like any poker movie, you know, Maverick or uh, there's a million poker movies that you could watch mm-hmm. that you could just rip off. I like and that make... Maverick was the first one you thought of. <laughs> Maverick. A great poker movie. Or even Casino Royale. Just like yeah. the tension of the match. This this movie, you have no sense of what's happening. I actually played. But how dare you, Dave? How dare you yeah. rip on Maverick? How dare you? <laughs> I'm just this saying. I'm just saying it's an interesting first choice for poker movie. You know, that like, is a where great were you during the '90s, movie. Dave? Yeah, Maverick like, was great. I, I, you know, Rounders is my go-to myself. But yeah, okay. I mean that's another yeah. good one. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yes. Uh, so, so what? What did you, like? They don't explain what the rules of Sabak are, so you can't really know, right? Right. Um, and he, there's no, there's no thing that Han does that everybody else at the table couldn't have done right, that right. makes him the winningest winner of all. He's just, he's just good <laughs> at it. It seems and, like there should have just been like one little line where he was like, "Oh, I grew up playing this in the streets right. of Corellia." It's no, the, the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. He literally has a line saying, "I've never played this before. How do you play?" <laughs> uh, but I took that to be him lying, lying to to like to, yeah, to yeah, make yeah. them underestimate him. Fair, fair enough, but th- yeah, th- there is li- we there's literally. Only two people at the table that we even know anything about or are 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 playing. You know, like there's a, it's a table full of people, <laughs> but it's either this guy wins or that guy wins, which is not how card games work. But that's <laughs> weird, right? And uh, we see Lando cheating, but we don't have any concept of why that would be. Or like you said, there's no rules to the game or that, that let us inside that experience. And wh- you know. It, it is is com- Davinder. You're so right. Is completely without dramatic tension, and there's nothing like that moment where we're supposed to be. That's when he gets the Millennium Falcon, right? But he goes there to do that, yeah. Which is also, I think, so dumb and so undercuts the idea of the Millennium Falcon from the original trilogy, which is like it's the ship that I won in a poker game. Like, how crazy is that? Not because I went. I gotta win that ship in a poker game. It, it it makes it so on the nose and intentional, like everything in this movie, instead of just having it be this cool part. Like, how much cooler is it that a guy went to a poker game and happened to be playing to a poker game, and the poker game got so crazy that somebody put up their ship? <laughs> you know, like I yeah. when I was in college, uh, I played a lot of poker, and one time uh, I didn't have any more money to put in, so I offered my hat. I literally was like, I'll put my hat in the in the ring. And we all joked that that was like how the Millennium Falcon would have happened. It, and it, it made for a funny story, but it, it was a consequence of how high the stakes were right, of the right. uh, that grew organically out of the game. Instead of, I'm going to this place to win a ship, and I'm going to try to see if I can get this guy to put his ship up. It's just so much less interesting that way, in my yeah. opinion. And Han also puts up a ship that he doesn't have and like he loses. So like, what? yeah, I guess we never go back to that. No, 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 no. Like, My understanding is the very last scene of the film is him winning the Millennium Falcon. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so he doesn't win the, the Millennium end. Falcon in this scene. It's yes. at the very last scene when he confronts Lando again. That's what he went. But the same complaint applies, Jeff. Uh, that I, I, Yeah. It, like it, tension wise, it's the same yeah. issue, but it's more like. I, I don't know. Like uh, for me, the stuff happening outside of that scene, like everything L3 was doing, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is fantastic. You know, Star Wars is not lacking in sassy robots. Uh, I think <laughs> since like, uh, was it Knights of the Old Republic or whatever, the the PC game, yeah. uh, there, there were some great sassy robots there. 
Um, I, I guess I saw I saw mm-hmm. a Star Wars film uh, recently that had a robot that was really funny and sassy and that died tragically in the course of yeah. the mission. But I liked it better when it was called Rogue One. Yeah, um, it was. It also happened in Rogue One. Are you able to boom goes a dynamite the same franchise? <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> yeah. you are. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's just like a recursive boom goes a dynamite loop, basically. <laughs> yeah, I just keep booming. Uh, but I love Phoebe Waller Bridge and what she brought to the character. But then again, like the movie completely, you know. <laughs> So we mentioned she died already, right? In this yeah. uh, the summary, but like, yeah, she's introduced. She dies. The movie, like, it, it makes up like her talking about robot rights and everything. They put her into the Millennium Falcon and literally just take away her voice. So first of all, I didn't realize the Millennium Falcon even had like AI systems, but apparently this was something like it's brought self, up in the, the books. Millennium Falcon is self-aware, apparently. If, yeah. It, if it's that easy, why isn't every ship like that? <laughs> there, there is that, but also you like put the thing in the thing and go beep pop boop. Oh, now it has a life. It's, why does not every ship have AI? Why? It, it was just hilarious to me. Like your solution for this, you know, rebel robot character who's fighting for robot rights and everything is to take her brain out and put her voiceless into a ship and where she's just like, she's stuck there. Her existence. Now this robot's existence <laughs> is the millennium Falcon for the rest of the franchise. And Which nobody would be, knows. It wouldn't be a big deal if the movie hadn't brought up robot rights 10 minutes. Right, earlier, right, right, right. Exactly. Why, we, we've got to talk pilots? about that. <laughs> why do ships have pilots? So guys, we, we got to talk about the droid issue because it's weird. Y- yes. Patrick, yeah. very what, weird. What, I mean, so there, there's basically a, um, uh, a, a droid civil rights subplot in this film, it, right? It's basically uh, the the spew subplot from the fourth Harry Potter book. Right, yeah. <laughs> Creature, or whatever his name is. Right. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's right. The, the same, the, it's the, the same exact thing. And I, I enjoyed uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's performance. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about the, uh, just that character's general plot of... I mean, basically, because, you know, droids have always just been like robots programmed to serve a function uh, throughout all of Star Wars. And this kind of retcons them all into being unwilling slaves. Yeah, I mean, but they, they kind of always were, though, like R- R2-D2, C-3PO. Those are characters with personalities and thoughts of their own, right? They don't just do what they're programmed to do. In fact, they mostly don't do what they're programmed to do. <laughs> So yeah, I, but, I feel like but they never felt they way. never felt like you know C three PO is very fastidious, but he, it, yes. ne- he never felt like when he talked he never felt like he was being oppressed and enslaved. Enslaved. I well, know. I mean, Star Wars has a this. weird relationship with slavery in general, guys. Don't forget the Phantom Menace, where Qui Gon Jinn goes goes to this thing is like <laughs> I, I think at some point Obi Wan's like, should we save these people? And Qui Gon's <laughs> like, no, it's not our responsibility <laughs> to save the slaves. First I'm going to take these kids. I'm going to take First this one all, kid who could destroy us all, but. We'll take him and not save the slaves. Don't, don't ever say the sentence. Don't forget the Phantom Menace because I've been trying really, the hard, trying really hard to forget the Phantom Menace. <laughs> Never forget. And honestly, mm, uh, once we're done with this whole recap thing, like, I'm going to talk about the the other prequels. But which, uh, yeah, the, I I I just thinking of this right now. But but I, I totally agree with you, Devendra, because. Uh, I mean, I think uh, C three PO is is the like is, is the happy butler, right? But yeah. we see him become an indentured servant under Jabba the Hutt. He yep. becomes a slave, and that is a different situation for him. Like, he does not want to be serving Jabba. He is enslaved. Yeah, but, but so, Jeff, are you agreeing with Patrick's issue, or are you disagreeing with it? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing that it's an issue in this movie, but I'm <laughs> disagreeing that it is, uh, it has never been an issue for droids before. Mm, I think, right. I they think never droids... brought it up. That doesn't mean it's not an issue, but they just never explicitly. Yeah, but so here they... they all have like chips that are yeah. 
that, that yeah. basically just like get pulled off them and suddenly they can just revolt and think for themselves even like, like the most simple and least high tech of, <laughs> right. of droids are suddenly rampaging and i mean i thought that was funny but but then i also started thinking like so wait does this go yep. for every single because it seems like some yes. of these droids they're just you know, they're just serving little functions. They just like yeah. carry things. I'm a trash pot. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so now every single droid is is has like is BB-8 enslaved. Uh, does it, yeah, I mean, you, it, now it, you have to think about it. You have, because this film, the timeline, it takes place, I believe, between episodes two and three in the uh, in the prequel timeline, right? So no, no, it's it's not. No, it, it, it the, like the Emperor is around. This okay. takes place. Yeah, it's after three. It's uh, far after three. After yeah, three. Well, I, I, let me point out in the chat room. No, it can't people be. People are going insane because R two D two had restraining bolts in the first Star Wars. That's that was a thing. I do remember that, mm. but it was oh. not. It was not done in the way like I don't think like the idea of robot enslavement was really explored in the way that it's touched on in this movie and also pretty much dropped. But it has yeah. to be. This has to be uh, before Darth Maul is killed, right? It has to be. No, 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 no. no. It's mm. after episode one because Darth Maul um, has a robotic bottom half in this film. Yes, mind he comes back uh, in yeah. the TV shows. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Guys, also, I'm pretty sure I, I know when this when this is set. Uh, so I think there's 20 years between episodes three and four, mm-hmm. and I think this is set halfway between them. So like 10 years before A New Hope. All right, yeah. I, that would make sense uh, age wise for Han. <laughs> right, because I think Harrison Ford was thirty-two or three, uh, in like when they shot that movie, and so this would make Han like twenty-two. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, I, I still not a hundred percent sure on that. I, like, I, like I've read that it was between episodes two and three, but yeah, around that time period, around the, around like episode three-ish, let's say. Uh, or after. Also, Alexander Hoffman in the chat room was saying, it's literally a plot point in the first Star Wars that droids are discriminated against and basically slaves. They have restraining bolts. Um, this is killing oh, me. Right, the, yeah. the, the Jawas. Is, yeah. Yeah, the, Jawas yeah, yeah. the Jawas mistreat them and uh, enslave them. Yeah, yeah. So, th- so then I guess the question, right, Patrick, is when they're recruited into the rebellion, like, are they still slaves at that point? You know, is the question you have to ask. Yeah, they're, they're pretty right. free, though. You look at BB-8, you look at, like, R2, like, they, they do their own thing. And they, they, <laughs> they wouldn't be able they to help like our heroes masters. if they don't. Yeah. yeah. They, they I, mean, like they, I hate masters. to call them their masters. But well, this is why I... I mean, my <laughs> issue with this is that I think bringing up this issue of, like, droid rights yeah. and, and, and enslavement just... Complicates the issue too much, mm-hmm. and then it raises all these questions about even the the droids that are you know that are protagonists throughout the other movies. And so this, true. So I, I the, think Patrick, you're coming at this from a privileged position of a conscious being, <laughs> and I think we should talk about these robot rights, honestly. <laughs> and I'm being serious true. here. Uh, yeah. Octo Rocks in the chat room, by the way, does reference that in the bar in A New Hope, uh, they don't allow the droids in. Like we don't mm-hmm. serve your kind. So, so it, it is not a completely unfamiliar idea in the French. So, so if we characterize it that way, that's our bad. But yeah. I do agree with Patrick that it kind of lobs a a bomb into like yes. this film is otherwise not really about that much i mean there is that big turn at the end where han you know um throws in with the uh the people going like the rebellion right but yeah it 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 feels like really the thin the themes of the film feel really thinly sketched out and um and the theme was my god we got to make a han solo movie how do we make a han solo movie what are the plot points of han solo okay and so it felt like the the sort of civil rights thing was very like uh tacked on um, yeah. So it yeah. seems like they thought it would be a, f- a funny thing to have a droid 
who who's you know main personality quirk was that she was really independent mm-hmm. and 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 you know one was cared about uh, the rights of droids and and you know was always like uh like a big proponent for for droids like you know being free and i thought that, wouldn't that be funny if if one of these droids was trying to free other droids yeah. because you know all the droids just follow orders but then it, it but then if you dig into it it, <laughs> it gets really complicated and yeah. i don't think they thought that through agreed they don't agreed. they don't yeah all right uh well let's also talk about the kessel run you know so uh uh, I think people have uh, criticized my my take on this film when I said like okay the movie is two and a half hours continuously of of uh, answering all these questions we didn't care about. Um, they've said well no that's only twenty percent of the movie guys the entire movie <laughs> like the, the second half of the movie is about the Kessel Run right yeah which is an answer again another answer to this question we we didn't really care about I think I think the the one thing that this movie does is it finally puts to bed the fan debate that's been going on for decades of why did Han say this uh, spaceship made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs? Parsecs is a unit of uh, distance, not time. That, that doesn't make any sense. Well, we find out that, in fact, it does make sense. It is a unit of distance, and it, it's about he took a shortcut, and that's why uh, that's why he could make the Kessel <laughs> yeah. run in 12 parsecs, right? So, uh, right. so in, you know, in A New Hope, and again, this is the... Guy, I don't want to be, but I'm going to be again. The, <laughs> one gets the feeling, I got the feeling always, that here's this dude who's saying this thing that is supposed to be impressive, but no one else gives a shit. It isn't actually impressive. Yeah, it, right. Yeah. It's a thing he's boasting in an empty way because he's not the guy he claims to be. And to say, oh, I did the Kessel one in 12 parsecs, like, <laughs> and then have that be like this incredible action sequence moment, which, by the way, he didn't really do it. Yeah. You know, it, and it's the ship that did it. And it it's it wasn't a function of how fast the ship. He's using it as an example to show how fast the ship was, but it's not really about how fast the ship was because they literally used the equivalent of nitrous to do it. <laughs> like you could have done that with any ship. So why would you even bring it up to Luke and Obi-Wan and as a but way guys, we finally get a fast and furious moment <laughs> yeah. in Star Wars movie. Yeah. It's just all engage the Nas. Yeah. All so, of this, all of this is exactly you already said it, Dave, but it's exactly the opposite of Rogue One, where it, it diminishes the things we know mm-hmm. rather than improves the things we know. Yeah. I I think actually this whole Kessel Run sequence, and Patrick, I want to hear what you think about this, but I thought it was pretty rough and what i mean by that is it felt like a bunch of just like there were some genuinely amazing moments visually like um uh seeing the uh, star destroyer in this kind of uh tornado space tornado or whatever it was like that was really a cool visual and seeing like the tie fighters come out that was cool and then like the space monster is cool but then it really it felt like watching that fight scene from anchorman like that really escalated quickly like Okay, we got a space monster. We got a star destroyer. Then we got a space monster, and then we have a black hole thingy with fire. And yep. then, by the way, this—it's uh, closing up now. You're in a cave. Um, what? Like they're in space? Yeah. You know, it's just it's like it's it, many things. Also, let's redo the asteroid the asteroid sequence from Empire. Let's it, just redo it. it let's call like the same showing... music. The same music. <laughs> they just bring it up as if you can just do that. 
they're <laughs> throwing all this that. shit like at the screen you know it yeah. just felt like oh here's a bunch of like look, this looks cool this looks cool look at this look at this like yeah. they don't explain there's no scene where they talk about like okay the Kessel Run like if we take the shortcuts really tough because like look at all XYZ we're gonna face all this shit uh, yeah. it just they're just throwing a bunch of stuff at the screen Patrick Willems what do you think of it uh, so okay if we're talking Kessel Run are we starting back to when they're going to Kessel yeah and anything you want to talk through... about anything you want to talk about oh, I mean, okay, so this is this is a big section of the movie. I thought it was mostly okay. Uh, there were things I liked, things I, I didn't like as much. Um, like, you know, I I liked the the actual uh, getting like, or like like arriving on Kessel thing and like them in disguise and like pretending to be the slaves and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's very sort of classic heist stuff. Yeah. And the one thing I really thought it was missing because this is structurally very much a classic heist movie, is uh, a scene where they all meet around a table yep. and discuss the plan. Because uh, even though that kind of stuff is basically exposition, I think that's so much of the fun of mm-hmm. the the genre or subgenre. This, yeah, Chris, you know, Christopher Nolan has said that basically uh, a heist film is the only kind of film where like straight exposition is acceptable. You know, I like, thought about that exact quote yeah. while I was watching this movie. Nice. Yeah. That's why and, you're on this uh, podcast so, today, Patrick. <laughs> I, I mean, my, my senior thesis film in college was a heist movie. And so I just watched like every heist movie ever as research. So I have like a lot of thoughts and, and feelings and opinions about this specific subgenre, uh, subgenre. And so, and I, I was hoping for that scene where they're like, okay, here's the plan. And then you see them, you know, talking over, but I enjoyed that stuff when they, you know, when they got down there and, and just seeing kind of, play out and i was thrown by the tonal shift when l3 dies yeah and it gets very yeah. serious there but then i enjoyed the the star destroyer appearing in the maelstrom and uh and i i really liked just that just the the visual of them of like the giant eye opening and just discovering this like lovecraftian beast uh, in space, and I liked it less when they kind of pulled back and you could see the entire thing. Yeah. But I thought just the, but that I mean, it was it was kind of like a sarlacc pit type thing of just a a creature that's so vast you can't mm-hmm. you can only see like a fraction of it, and we don't we almost never encounter that in the other movies. And I thought that was a really cool just visual idea, and um and then I think like the escaping stuff was like the sort of the weird gravity hole was not especially compelling um i because i just uh, i'll always appreciate a little like you know set up and and pay off uh just you know squeezing through like the rocks is like a you know the the payoff to the 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 first act thing where they're trying to squeeze through the alley uh it's like it's obvious but i can't help but enjoy that kind of thing i think it's functional and um, yeah, in general, that, that 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 section it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think overall it kind of like sort of works. I will say, we uh, it, another one of the eye rolly moments when Woody Harrelson puts on the disguise that Lando wears mm. in Jabba's palace yeah. in, in we, Jedi. If we think through that, <laughs> does they're putting together the mission to go get Carbonite Han from Jabba the Hutt? Does Lando go? You know, 10 years ago, there was this <laughs> costume that worked so well. You know what would be a delight for Han to see when he woke up from Carbonite? Is me wearing his old, the guy that double-crossed him <laughs> and he had to murder. Wouldn't it be so, 
wouldn't it be such a, a just a great laugh that we'll all have as we're breaking him out of prison that I'm dressed up exactly like his old his old compatriot who double crossed him. Gosh, I, I'm going to dig that costume out of storage. Well, the important thing here is that Lando never updated his wardrobe. He just kept everything that was on the Falcon. Yeah. And then brought them with him after he lost the Falcon. And so just, you know, even in Return of the Jedi, his his entire wardrobe is just those capes and stuff. And then that one disguise. It's all I mean, he owns. Again, in, that, in the film's credit, like th- this series, this franchise, mm-hmm. I'm talking about Rogue One, everything, uh, does really do a great job with the space capes. I think the space <laughs> capes oh, yeah. look yes. awesome. I'm, not, I'm being okay. 100% serious. I think I like, Amelia Park's cape, yeah. when, when she, when she uh, descends from, from the Falcon, looks right. great. When Kira, when Kira comes down, it's, it's, she looks freaking majestic, you know, when yeah. she's coming yeah. down with the cape. And I think that, that's an important yeah. thing. Rogue One, guys, Rogue One had so many great space capes. Yes. Ben Mendelsohn's cape? Ben Mendelsohn has a great space cape. Good stuff. I'm still yeah. mad that that great shot of his cape like yeah. going through the water from the first trailer isn't in the actual movie. Oh. Oh yeah, because it's yeah. a great cape shot. Yep, but great cape I, I don't want to. I don't want to get too far away from this disguise thing because it really <laughs> bothers me, guys. Because it is the perfect microcosm of everything that is wrong with prequels, right? Mm-hmm. If you think for even half a second about the logic of that thing showing up here, it makes no damn sense. The only reason <laughs> it's there is like, hey, audience, remember this. It is it is functionally stupid. It makes no sense. It is just a member berry. It is just member, member this. And it is it, it cheapens all of it. It cheapens the entire endeavor. And that I think happens over and over and over in this in these movies, in these prequels. It's like we're gonna shove a thing that didn't really have a big meaning in the later films because it was in context, but we're going to shove it in this thing to give it some meaning, but the meaning we give it is stupid and doesn't make any sense logically. And it's really only there because we're all remember burying and and it makes me so crazy. I don't disagree with you, Jeff, but I do think that like the Han Solo getting his name and Chewie getting his nickname, like those are actually much worse in my opinion. Sure. No, I just think it's a perfect encapsulation yeah. of that problem. Right. If sure. you if you are no enough, like if you, if you, you are re- yeah, if you yeah. like re- like recognize the callback, certainly yeah. Okay, let's move on. We're we, we're running out of time here. Voss surprises the team by announcing that the coaxium is fake. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Did I yeah? Did I get to this part? Yeah. So they they uh, rendezvous on Severine, and Voss surprises the team by announcing the coaxium is fake. He reveals that his inside man, revealed to be Beckett informed him of Han's plan to sell the real shipment to the Cloud Riders, a rebellion group led by Enfys Nest. Han announces that he anticipated Beckett's deception. The coaxium they are holding is real. Beckett takes Chewbacca hostage and escapes with the coaxium. A gunfight between Han, Kira, and Voss results in Kira killing Voss. She urges Han to help the Cloud Riders and insists she'll join him shortly. After Han leaves, Kira seals the room. Okay, mm-hmm. more to talk yeah. about. Let's talk about this whole sequence where the the betrayal is is revealed so patrick you're just one thing real quick yep go ahead there was (laughs) that moment where he's like oh i had an informant the whole time there was a split second where i was like if lando calrissian i thought it might be lando yeah i was like if lando calrissian (laughs) walks that door i am setting fire to this theater (laughs) (laughs) i think thank god that didn't happen there were definitely a couple moments like that through the film like one is when the the girl takes off her her helmet and it's like made to be this big moment, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my like, gosh, is Sandy Newton? Who is it going to be? Who's going to be yeah. in the helmet? Yeah, is it Sandy Newton? Is it going to be like Mon Mothra or whatever the heck? Like, um, 
not Mon Mothra. What, what's her name? Um, Mon Mothma. Uh, um, what did you say? Mon Mothma. Mothma. Yeah, sorry. Whatever. Mon Mothra, Mothra is the Star Wars giant. Uh, giant uh, moth. moth <laughs> yeah, creature sorry, that I, got, I got it wrong. Star Wars Godzilla. <laughs> Mon Mothma. That's correct. That's what I'm trying to say. So, uh, and I was like, is it going to be Mon Mothma? Is it going to be some like someone else we know? And it's just a random person we don't know, as far as we understand, right? Uh, and then like they open the door, and it, it feels like they shot it in a way. Where yep. it could be anyone. Like, they shot it in a way where, like, at the last minute, they could have changed their mind as to who would walk through that door. <laughs> that sounds um, like the entire movie, by the way. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Patrick Willems, you're th- so this is kind of like the reveal, like the heist payoff scene, right? This is kind of like. And this is also, it's like right up to the end of the movie. Right. It's like, we're. Because, okay, I've got things I want to say about, like, the the ending in general. Just and, say, like, just the, say the, it, man. Just get into it. Okay. Get into it. Okay, I'm just going to dive in. Just okay, so because I think this. This movie, and I, I like generally enjoy this, and it comes very close to being something okay to being what I think it should have been. But I think part of the problem with where it leaves off is that it wants to set up more movies, and that drives me nuts. Yes, because I think there is a very clear character arc for Han that it doesn't want to make because it wants to make more movies, in that it should go from him being an optimist to a cynic. Yes, and he. And he's a cynic at the beginning of A New Hope. And I think what this movie needed was to have him bond more with Beckett throughout the movie as a mentor yeah. figure. And then so that betrayal really hits. And to and I, I thought they they needed like another scene to really kind of play up the romance between him and Kira and him really like be optimistic and have these and really believe that they are going to run off together and everything will work out. And then she betrays him and have that really land as well. And so he realizes that, you know, things are not going to work out the way, the way he thought they would. Everyone like, like will betray you. Don't get close to anybody other than Chewie and, and, and just, just try to make money and that's it. And, and, and lose hope. And, and they, it, it comes so close. Like you could really easily fix that stuff uh, with like another draft, yeah. and but they don't quite do it. Like they introduce that idea of uh, Elphis Nest, I believe it was. Who also I I, sh- I didn't mention earlier. They have the best design. They look so cool. Mm-hmm. I I love just whenever they're on screen. I get I got stoked because I was like, ah, look at that! Like their helmets rule. They're a little kind of like flying speeder bikes are cool. It's all great. But then the idea that they're kind of like part of a proto rebellion, and then he helps them out. I, I also kind of. Like that uh, hurts his his development in A New Hope because he's already sympathetic to the idea of a rebellion. And that frustrated me. And because at its heart, this movie is so close to just being a very functional classic heist movie set in the world of Star Wars. And there's a lot I like about it in that it is basically it's just it's the only Star Wars movie that's not about the rebellion it's not about jedi or mythology it's just about people living in this world and and if you just took out like the prequel aspects and and just gave han that arc that it's so close to giving him i think this could could be like a straight up good movie and i think as it is it's like a pretty okay movie let, let me mm-hmm. um play 100%, man a hundred percent so yeah. so well said let me play devil's advocate for you guys. Yes, you know I I I found this film to be an excruciating experience. Um, <laughs> but but I'm gonna try to defend. I'm gonna try to defend it for a second. Okay, so I, I think there's actually been another example of a. Uh, I'm gonna bring you to TV, right? 
there's a there's a series where there's a character, uh, a side character who's like extremely cynical at the beginning of when you see him in in this TV series. And then there's a prequel. Yes, sorry. that's right. There's, you, you spoiled my you spoiled my ending, but there's I'm a so prequel sorry. where uh, you see him being really optimistic and continuing to be optimistic, and actually, like as far as I know, like as you know, the most recent season, he's still fairly optimistic. You know, like there's some things that have been done to like deal a blow to that, but like he's still trying to be a good person. Um, and the show is taking extreme amounts of time, like years, to explain to you how he makes that journey from optimism to cynicism, which you then pick up on at the beginning of the next series. Mm-hmm. And so, and that series, as you indicated, is Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, right? Um, like, Better Call Saul, when you see him, uh, when you see Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad, he's like a uh, horrible huckster character, and uh, Better Call Saul is a multi-year journey to explain how he got to that point. Um, so, uh, presumably, they're going to make more of these, and maybe there's a scenario where... Um, they do show how Han has be- like this, the the optimism is beaten out of him, right? Don't you think that's possible, Patrick? What do you think? I mean, it they they really leave it off there, uh, indicating that there's going to be more of this because it, it didn't feel to me like that's the last time he's ever going to see Kira. Yeah, and and I thought, mm-hmm. and and it should have felt that way. Like she's mm-hmm. gone forever. She she does not need him at all she needs she's just like out of his life and uh but yeah and also and can we talk about the giant cameo because we have to yeah sure. yeah let's talk about it um <laughs> so shocking everyone well I, before we talk about the giant cameo like let me ask you guys like divinia and jeff any thoughts on this final beckett sequence of uh of them taking like i thought there was actually some mm-hmm. cool it was actually a very competently shot fight scene, I thought, with Beckett yeah. with his laser knives and whatever. Right. And Paul, Paul Buttony there, definitely having a lot of fun. I do feel like like when she it, – it's too kind of a betrayal for what this movie really needs, right? Like I get that she loves him and everything, but like this is a point where like, you know, she needed to shoot him. She is something. He needed to not just be abandoned by her, but like wounded yeah. in a way. Well, it's also the most telegraphed betrayal ever. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, hey, hey, like, go, I'll, I'll go on. Right I'll just clean up don't back here. Go, I'll, yeah, I'll be right behind cool, you. Cool. I'll just clean up. Don't worry. I'll be right behind <laughs> you. It's just like, okay, you're never seeing each other again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never leave the room first. <laughs> um, th- there's also a moment that to me felt like the, a huge missed opportunity. They're all in this crazy standoff. Uh, Beckett comes back. He finds out, oh, it's a double reverse uh, betrayal. I can just walk out of here. I'm going to take uh, <laughs> Chewbacca and just go. Awesome. Yeah. He leaves. Fight scene. What would have been made the movie, I think, even better in that moment is he leaves. There's a moment where everybody looks at each other and we all make the realization that we have to kill each other right now. You know, that if the movie right. takes a breath right there and we all acknowledge that, oh, we're all in the room, there's no more standoff right now because the threat to all of us just left. <laughs> and now what do we do? Are we cool? Oh, we're not cool? Fight. Like that's how you <laughs> punctuate those kinds of scenes to make them feel awesome instead of he literally leaves the room and then we just have an action sequence. Yeah. It's like there's no poetry to that. It moment. feels perfunctory to you. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Moving on, I can't tell. Did you like this movie, Jeff? No, okay. I, did, I know I, I'm being very negative, but I, I I did have fun with it, and I I you know that's a 
trap we fall into often on this show is that we yeah. nitpick, but um, I did have fun with it. And but I do, I, I do wish fun, I could so see. I feel fine about the way we're criticizing <laughs> it. I do wish I could see Patrick's rewrite version because I think that would be. I think I may have liked that movie a lot more. I think part of the problem there is that with the movie that I think this needs to be, it has to be a sub, at least end on a darker note and a more cynical yeah. note and ha- yeah. really have you know you know this the romance be doomed and uh and han have to you know like like kill the guy who was like you know his mentor like kind of a father figure and they want this movie to be really fun and so by nature of what they're trying to make they can't go to where i think it needs to go right a star wars story <laughs> yeah yeah we can't make it go to where make. it needs to go a star wars a star wars story. story you just title the next one okay right um so uh, we're wrapping up here. We're in the end game now, guys. Uh, Han catches up with Beckett and Chewbacca and kills Beckett after a standoff. Uh, Wait, when did he shoot, guys? He shoots first. When did he shoot? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I, uh, okay. I will say that this sequence actually worked fine for me. Uh, yeah. It worked okay. Mainly because, mainly because of uh, of... The actors of Woody Harrelson. Yeah, here's like, I a think question really I ask myself for every single one of these fan servicey things: is uh-huh. does it work without the metatextual knowledge you have about the rest of the series? Right? right? Yes. Does it, it work to. without knowing that Han shot first with Greedo? Blah blah blah. Like, and this this time it did work. Here's here's some things that don't work. Okay, the dice. Right? Like, who gives a shit about those? Like, if you don't if you don't know the history of the dice, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I think I think a, a different way of saying it is if these movies came out chronologically right would you we be like why do they keep showing this stupid shit <laughs> <laughs> yes that's right why do they keep showing this stupid shit exactly <laughs> okay so um patrick what do you think of this moment like did you did, did this move you when he ki- had to kill beckett like because i think that was one of your issues right is like the beckett han relationship right i mean i'm i'm totally with you like i do think this works on its own yeah i uh, and, and and again, I th- I think because him shooting first, while it is like, and I read an interview with uh, the two Kasdans yesterday where they even do say like, yeah, that we specifically wanted to have Han shoot first. But in the moment of it, even though I'm aware of the like the metatextual aspect, I'm not thinking of it just as like, oh, it's a winky thing. But it, it actually feels like a motivated yeah, like, like he, character he has, moment. He has grown. He has he has learned. He cannot trust this man. And right, and, and so I, him. Yeah. I do wish that they had done the work earlier uh, to to make those characters closer, and so that it would hit harder. But on its own, I think it works. Han and Chewbacca deliver the coaxium to Nest, who reveals her plans to use the coaxium to aid the rebellion against the Empire. She offers Han the chance to join her, but he declines. And Nest states that someday he may feel more sympathetic to the rebels' cause. Uh. <laughs> This this felt kind of like a, a a very um you really remember at the end of like the Hobbit movies when no, uh, I, I I genuinely have only seen the first one. So that's, well, there, no. there's a scene oh, that I think so uh, one of the elves says to uh, one of the other characters like, "Hey, there's this dude out there you gotta find." They call him Strider, and it's like I don't think that actually happened in the books that way. You know, like uh, it just is like one day you may be in the rebellion. It felt like a very fan servicey like call out, like very on the nose call out, as as the rest of the film is to the the rest of the sequence. But guys, here's a, here's a question for you: uh, untangling the plot of this film. The idea is that Dryden Voss is the leader of Crimson Dawn, but then 
uh, the the Enfys Nest Rebellion group is saying like Crimson Dawn is just going to give the stuff to the Empire. Sure, but then they were heisting the Empire. So was Dryden bought like were they stealing wait, they from the Empire the- to sell it back to the Empire? Like, I I don't. Yeah, I didn't. I could that. just be misremembering it, but I missed the part about them just giving it back to the Empire because they're gonna give it to Darth Maul. But who apparently is now – this is due to me doing research last night after I saw the movie <laughs> – apparently an independent guy because I see. that's what happens in Rebels. Okay, that he's makes a freelancer. sense. freelancer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's free agent, uh, private Apparently peer. he's no longer Darth Maul. He's just Maul now. Yeah, because there's already a Darth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My right. father is Darth Maul. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, okay. So uh, moving on, right? Let's talk about that cameo. So alone aboard Voss's yacht – Kira contacts Voss's superior, who is revealed to be the former Sith Lord uh, Darth Maul, now called Maul. She inform- informs him of the mission's failure and assumes Voss's position. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this. This is a pretty big moment, big spoiler in the movie. And as exp- explanatory text, yeah, so uh, Patrick, I've, I've done some research during this podcast, and it appears you are right. Like, apparently this movie takes place sometime after Episode 3, but before Rogue One, right? Yeah. And... Um, According to legend, like Wikipedia and other sources, apparently Maul used, like when he was cut in half in episode one, Maul used the force to grab an air vent (laughs) as he was tumbling down the reactor shaft and uh, managed to make it into a trash container. His shattered body was dumped on the junkyard world of Lothor Minor, uh, and he lived in the bowels of the planet and had his legs replaced by a six-legged apparatus that allowed him to walk again. A very obscure Jedi power known as retcon. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, lightsabers, since they're, you know, they're like heat-based, it's it's like a clean burn. Yeah. You know, he has no entrails coming out. Cauterized but, it immediately, right? Right. right. Yeah. But yeah, I uh, have not watched Clone Wars or Rebels, and apparently this is detailed in there, and like mm-hmm. he comes back. Uh, like in Rebels, and so I didn't even know about that. I, I had missed that entirely. So he shows up on screen, and I'm just like, "What the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, is, is it is it another member of his species? Is it like wh- what is happening?" And, and this well, one seems so verbal. <laughs> yeah, and also that's not Pete Serafinowicz. <laughs> well, and, I think the, pro- the you know you know <clears throat> this is this Jeff. You're talking about microcosms. This scene encompassed everything I hated about this movie as well, which yeah. is, uh, sure, having Darth Maul show up, okay, that's kind of interesting, kind of cool, surprising. But then he, like, turns on his lightsaber in this incredibly <laughs> comical, threatening way. Like, it's like yeah, FYI, let's work together. Yeah, here's how you know I'm Darth Maul. I got the double light. Remember that? Remember that from the first <laughs> episode, guys? That. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just, like that's not that's not how someone would behave. You don't see freaking Jedi activating lightsabers in the hollow chat to threaten people. <laughs> hey, uh, is the does the hollow camera get my whole body? Because I want to <laughs> do a thing at the end of this shot. Yeah, just make just, sure the hollow camera gets my whole because it's important that it gets my hands. Make sure you get the lightsaber, uh, especially both sides. It's a double sided one. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you know that. You need a wide angle lens. Got to get it both. <laughs> you know. What I think is weirdest about that scene is that I think it's a first for the Star Wars movies in general in that it is reliant on you having seen like other media, like not just mm. the movies to understand w- the context for it. It's uh, it's ba- it's doing like a, a like comic book storytelling thing, being like we assume that you've like read this this other series, and so you know about these like these new revelations. Because if you just watch the Star Wars movies, as I have, 
that makes no sense because well, well, we saw Doctor Paul yeah. die. Put differently, Patrick. Yeah, uh, it, it's not that it relies on these other things. It's also that like if you haven't. Uh, the impact is dramatically lessened, and in fact, the appearance by itself, self-contained, is rather silly. Um, can I t- yeah. can I take a different take? I think it is perhaps not that so much. It is, is just it just confuses the timelines. It's like because I didn't even put, I didn't even do that mental gymnastics, even though I'm kind of aware of the the rebels retconning of Darth Maul. Like I I just assumed oh this takes place before Ma- Darth Maul got killed, mm-hmm. which is what I expressed earlier when we were talking about timelines, and I realized I was wrong. But it just—it was just something I didn't put a lot of mental energy into. I just went, "Oh, cool! It's before Darth Maul got sliced in right. half." It's—it's it's an odd one. It's an odd, it's an odd moment. Uh, and and harder <laughs> still is if if Patrick is right, and I suspect he is, that this is all about setting up the solo trilogy. Uh, we better not see him bumping up against any Jedi or Sith. Like uh-huh. if we're setting up Kira to be a Sith Lord or even sort of use the force in some way, which I think is what they're hinting at is that she's done things that you can't imagine. Like she's training to, you know, accentuate her force powers emerging. If that's where we go, I'm going to be real pissed because I mean, he clearly states I've never seen, I've been around this crazy galaxy. I've never seen a lot of things. I've never seen anything that made me think that that's real. So this game, this trilogy, if it happens, will have to dance around that him not ever seeing it actually happen in, in a weird way. Like <laughs> up until the end of this movie, I was like, well, you know, one of the things I want to give this movie credit for is I think this is the first star Wars movie that's had no Jedi and no Sith in it. And then of course at the end, it's like, Hey, we got one. <laughs> um, uh, so I, 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 I did. That's I, not how I interpreted when she's talking about how I've done things you can't imagine. You know, I, I, I thought she was talking about like cutting out a bunch of tongues out of people. Like right, they were right. talking, you she's know, done like, nasty, she's done like terrible, things. terrible things. Yeah. Um, uh, I, but, I got a feeling that we were going to see her because she's in contact with Maul, like her as force sensitive in some way, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. She we'll gets see. Those, those shiny vibra blades and yeah. they'll be fun. But I, I agree, like Patrick. The, the thing about what you said is, it relies on this other media, right? Like, I, I don't even know that people would know that they needed to watch right. Star Wars Rebels right. to understand this. You know, like, like it, we're, it's perfectly fine without it. But yeah, it just but this is this is not like the Marvel franchise where it's like, oh, okay, I got to watch these like fifteen films and I'm there. You know, like right, you, right. I mean, it, it's one thing for like Saw Gerrera to show up in Rogue One and. Right. He, it, like if you know that he show with he's from I think Clone Wars, then that's like some added history for you. But they don't expect you to know anything. And here, if you haven't, if you don't know about what happened to Darth Maul in the TV shows, it's just weird because mm-hmm. uh, because like I thought he was dead, uh, yeah. and I was just I, I was, and I I spent the whole scene just trying to you know do those mental gymnastics trying to figure out like okay but like like is that actually Darth Maul is like uh, how could this be Darth Maul is it like like how does any of this work what is going on yeah. and I mean I was surprised which is what they wanted but then I was confused which is not what they wanted yeah. I feel like that's even a pure expression of like comic book uh, mythology than even what we're seeing with the Marvel stuff because like oh yeah you don't know you were supposed to read this like short limited series at some point and things are happening now in the, sh- in the series that you like and it's very confusing and that's how it always felt uh, trying to follow like a single issue series to me and i think that's why they had him ignite his lightsabers (laughs) because you could easily interpret that as she's in contact with another of darth maul's species who's in the you know crime who's like no we want to make sure you know this is darth maul yo (laughs) i mean she could have just called him by name you know what i mean it it could could be in the dialogue like by the way this is maul no not darth anymore there's another one now just maul (laughs) 
It's a whole thing. Did you watch Rebels? <laughs> no. All what right. they did was one of those little like caption boxes, like in comics, you know, when there's like an asterisk yeah. and it's like, see issue like 131. Yeah. That's what they needed in this movie. A, a note from the editor. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, Han and Chewie track down Lando, uh, Lando and Han again challenges him to a Sabat game for possession of the Falcon. Han subtly relieves Lando of the card stashed up his sleeve and wins the game. Uh, Han tells Chewie he plans to take them to Tatooine where Beckett told him a gangster is putting together an organization as the Falcon jumps into hyperspace. Uh, is the gangster Jabba the Hutt? Is that what we're thinking? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, uh, okay. Fun little ending scene, I guess. Uh, payoff of the earlier card, uh, you know, cheating scene. Anything else we want to say about this scene? And then maybe we can take it to, like, wrapping up the whole movie in general. Yeah. Yeah. So the Millennium Falcon had a closed nose originally and because it got destroyed so much during the course of this movie it now has an open nose is that i think, I think the right? uh closed nose is an escape hatch right oh. uh, or escape pod like and that's what was ejected um to uh, kill that little space monster thing it's never get around never, to replacing that yeah. never replaced it uh, <laughs> yeah. okay never felt like that was necessary you know how it goes it. yeah you know it just sits in the garage <laughs> you get you get busy you know you don't want to uh, Boy, I time. missed that. I missed that. That yeah, you're right. That is very clear in the movie that that escape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I missed that completely. No My worries. Bad. Uh, well, that's why we have the podcast, Jeff. Um, yeah, thank so. God. <laughs> All right, Patrick. Any thoughts on this film? And any closing thoughts you want to leave us with as we wrap up? This any episode? closing thoughts? Well, okay. So something that I thought about a lot going into this movie, especially with the announcement yesterday of the Boba Fett spinoff movie. Is uh, over the past few years, have you guys been following the Star Wars comics at all that Marvel has been no. publishing? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Uh, they've been like largely very good. They've been very deliberate about what comics they've been publishing because this is like the new canon. And they've mostly just the only two sort of ongoing series that they've had uh, are just Star Wars and Darth Vader, both set, set between episodes four and five. And then they'll do a lot of little miniseries focusing on like an individual character with just usually like a little story about uh something in their past and and they're not given the same weight as the main series and this movie just thinking about it ahead of time as well as like the boba fett movie felt to me like these don't need to be movies these should just be like marvel comics miniseries they can still be canon but these are exactly the kind of stories that they're telling in the comics, and I don't understand what why they're so significant that they need to spend $250 million on them uh, and put them in movie form. And so, and just, and the choice is about what, because it's all, you know, while they're being very selective with, with this new canon, but the choice is about what stories we'll tell in movies and what we'll tell on TV and what we'll tell in the comics. It's a little odd to me mm-hmm. because this this does not have the weight that yeah. uh, that I would I would think that a movie would need to like like should have if they're gonna gotta, gotta commit feel that, that franchise machine like that that's really it like that's and this this was my worry when Disney was basically saying like oh yeah we're gonna have a Star Wars movie every year maybe sometimes too I don't know um yeah it's crazy I when I was growing up I I you know I was very into Star Wars but I and I read the Timothy Zahn novels and I got into some of the ancillary stuff but. Mostly, I stayed away from it because it felt messy. 
And what I loved mm-hmm. about Star Wars when I was a kid is that it wasn't messy. It was very clean. It was just this one thing. And that was in contrast. I mean, I love Star Trek as well, but it was in contrast to Star Trek, which like had multiple series and all these things. And it was very messy. And I feel like now the films are messy, too. And it, mm-hmm. it does feel like now we're just filming all these ancillary materials that used to just be comics or novels or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Did you write down an idea on a napkin? Okay, cool. Let's make it. <laughs> let's make a movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's been many great reviews written about Solo. One by Sam Adams uh, for Slate reads as follows. If you've ever, ever wondered why Han Solo ended up with a surname that is also an adjective or how his Wookiee pal got his nickname, have I got a movie for you? Well, not exactly a movie. Uh, Solo, which was written by Lawrence and Jonathan Kasdan and directed by Ron Howard, isn't a standalone film so much as a corporate directive made flesh, a quarterly earnings report in a vest and black leather boots. Solo isn't a movie for the fans so much as at them, harnessing its (laughs) makers' considerable skill and experience to gratify the urge for the familiar with no pretense or aspiration of doing anything else, end quote. Wow. Um, I think it's, you know, one of the things that's disappointing, you know, uh, Ray Pride captured this at his in his review. He said, uh, "Quote: Imagine you have all the money in the world. You can tell any story you want. Nobody to stop you. No one. And what you give a hypothetically eager audience is Ron, uh, Ron Howard solo. Uh, <laughs> think of it. You, if you had the largest uh, barge load of the galaxy's entertainment investment capital, why not sit down and have artists be artful with their crafting of commodities? Hit those beats. Don't shark those arcs, and let joy shine in with a few shimmers of inexplicable poetry that lodge in minds worldwide." End quote. Um, I, I think th- there is this idea that like the the Star Wars universe should be expanding, right? And this movie. It, it makes it contract, right? It mm-hmm. makes it feel like it's not as big. It's it's smaller than, or maybe than that's just the plan be. for the spinoffs, right? Because I surprisingly, Disney took plenty of chances with Last Jedi, like where that movie goes and how it treats yeah. the universe. And then this movie, and then Rogue One, seemed like they were they really wanted to contract, like how big of a scope and what they could actually do. Yeah, yeah. right. And and, yeah. and I will say, if you look at you know some reactions from fans who hate the Last Jedi. You know, a, a lot of them are pretty into Solo. Sure. Be- because I can it, it, it is so giving them what they want, which, uh, in, you I know, uh, is in some ways like a, a Wikipedia article in, sorry, Wikipedia article yeah. in, in movie form. And, um, and, I, and I say that as someone who still most like, generally kind of enjoyed this movie. It's and, the opposite uh, of Kill the Past. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Right. And I, I, but of course, you know, they are still making like the Ryan Johnson trilogy, which seems like just in theory, yeah. even though we know nothing about it, like it will be the spinoff that we hope for. That will That's expand the most exciting the thing. Yeah. Happening yeah. now in this universe. Uh, a couple of takeaways from me. I want to shout out to uh, Alan Shurstill's uh, uh, review at The Village Voice, because I think that's the one that really encapsulates where I c- kind of feel about this movie. It's called Solo Doesn't Quite Got It Where It Counts, Kid. And it's all about the asteroid sequence. It is all about how the <laughs> asteroid sequence is much better, like just in terms of like choreography and direction, dramatic tension compared to the Kessel run, which is just that all over again. And uh, final thought for me, by the way, I think I would rather watch any of the prequel movies than this again. Whoa. Yeah, that's where I'm at. And it's crazy to me. Like I'm those movies aren't good. Like I would say Phantom Menace is definitely a worse movie than this but even that movie in it's like almost three hour runtime springs to life at certain points in ways that this one never does mm. and it's a slog but i you know i i would rewatch phantom menace 
for the Duel of the Fates fight scene, for some of the pod race, sure. you know, for Darth Maul, like just jumping off the speeder bike and getting into a fight. Yeah, for, for those sorts of things. I genuinely like watching Attack of the Clones, even though that script is garbage. It's a fun, pulpy movie. And Revenge of the Sith, there is a lot of good stuff going on there. There's, there's energy. There is creativity going on in those movies. The way they look, the way they like shaped digital filmmaking. Um, there's a lot for me to go back and reflect on, even if they may not be better movies than this. And personally, it's the sort of thing like I would just rather watch that than a middling vanilla semi you know entertaining you know, action movie. I had this debate uh, last night with myself, Devendra, because I, th- I left that theater thinking that was terrible. Even the prequels are better than this, right? Yeah. And but I don't know that that's quite true. I think you're right that um, the prequels do have a lot of good stuff, like the Darth Duel of the Fates, written by John Williams, the Darth Maul fight sequence of the Phantom Menace, pod racing sequence. Um, and also just the fact that like George Lucas kind of looked down upon Force Awakens and and had yeah. negative comments about it because what George Lucas was trying to do was what I said. He was trying to like expand the world. Like for all their flaws, the prequels were trying to do something really ambitious. Mm-hmm. And I, I think stuff they failed new ideas yeah, and new stuff, visual concepts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They failed spectacularly. But I think they're, they they had more ambition than this movie does, and uh, and that being said, this movie also has a lot of things uh, above the prequels. First of all, mm-hmm. the acting is not god awful, right? I mean, I think you know Jake Lloyd and Hayden Christensen, like that is a rough series of performances of that character, and um, I think Alden Ehrenreich does a better job as Solo, and the cast overall feels like they're having more fun in this film than they do in the prequels. Um, and also, of course, like uh, a lot of these sequences look like they, you know, it's more of the original trilogy style shooting where it looks like they went to the actual places they shot and done with practical mm-hmm. effects. It doesn't all look like it was done on green screen. Um, so this movie does have its merits as well. Uh, and so for, for those reasons, I think it comes up, uh, you know, in my ranking above the prequels, but it's close. It's close. Um, so, I think uh, yeah. my final thoughts would be that I feel like my review here today is a, uh, a a metaphor for my experience in the movie itself. Like I had a lot of fun, but all of the nitpicky things have an outsized effect on my overall enjoyment. Right. You know, just right. like in this review, I keep harping on these things and under expressing the the positive stuff, and I think that's. That's my takeaway. Like, I don't have a desire to rewatch this movie. I mm-hmm. don't. It, it, it is yeah. is a lot of fun, but it is just the the the, yeah. the pandering and the uh, overemphasis on prequelness really just ruined it for me. All right. Well, on that bright note, why don't we wrap it up, guys? <laughs> uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week Patrick Willems been such a pleasure to have you on today and I hope we can do it again in the future Uh, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week yeah uh, again guys thanks so much for having me I've had a great time chatting with you all this morning and uh, and yeah you can find me on the internet uh, you can watch the videos that I make. They're usually out every Wednesday at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. You can follow me on all the social medias at Patrick H. Willems. And, uh, and you can listen to the podcast that I co-host with Matt and Jake Torpy. It's called We Heart Hartnett. explores the filmography of the actor Josh Hartnett. <laughs> and that's everywhere that podcasts are available. I just want to reemphasize that Patrick, in my opinion, is one of the m- most thoughtful, uh, you know, 
commentators on film uh, online, in my opinion. And so I'd, I'd really encourage you to check out his stuff. Yeah, uh, and you have you have a I kind. Know, you, you clearly have a large selection of Hartnett centric podcasts to listen to. Listen to Patrick's because <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when you make that decision, please. You know? It is the yeah, it is the best of a very crowded field. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jeff oh, and also, Kanaf. if Josh Hartnett is listening to this podcast, uh, Josh, we'd love to have you as a guest on ours. Uh, please, please, just tweet at me, and yeah, we'll talk. All right. All right. Um, I, I think he may be. A, you never know who's listening to this. Podcast. <laughs> I, li- I literally don't know. Uh, Jeff Kanata, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Well, uh, you can always follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. I do a video game podcast called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I do a comedy science show called We Have Concerns. You can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. Devendra Hardware. I am on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about tech at Engadget.com. And I'm probably going to write something about Solo and uh, the stupid droid write stuff uh, next week, so keep an eye out for that. All right, find all my stuff at Dave Chensky on Twitter. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. I'm also making regular YouTube videos, youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Next week, I'm pretty sure what we're going to be doing is reviewing American Animals. This is a new film by Bart Layton, which, uh, who, who made this film called The Imposter, which is like an awesome documentary. And uh, I've heard it's going to be great. Devendra, I think you're not going to be here for this one, though, right? I will be in Taiwan. You'll be in Taiwan at Computex, so uh, it's just going to be me, Jeff, and Christy for that one. But looking forward to that conversation. Should be a lot of fun. Thanks mm-hmm. for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out. <laughs>